0: August 28th, 2016 And we have the return of our guest Dr. Bill Warner tonight And if you remember he's been on two previous shows I highly recommend that you listen to the archives of both of those shows The first one was introductory and the second one was the beginning installment Uh, It turned out to be the beginning installment of an ongoing uh, multi-section class That Dr. Warner has offered to do for us very graciously And um, where that came from is I realized that I and probably all of you, or at least most of you, could really benefit from some more in-depth knowledge of what Islam is all about. And just in case anybody's wondering why that's a health issue on Lost Arts Radio, which is a health show, it's because... Islam, for whatever reason, and what I needed to find out, is being used as a major tool of the globalist New World Order consortium to destroy societies uh, in what used to be Western Europe and soon in the United States as well, and probably other places too. And, you know, I I didn't really feel like I understood that very well. I knew that... um, there were Muslim invasions going on, which has been historically happened before, um, but they were going on now, and they were going on uh, mostly by this group that originated and morphed out of Al-Qaeda and became ISIS, and what especially Obama likes to call ISIL right now to make it sound completely different. And <clears throat> they're, they've been, for for quite a few years now, being armed and trained and directed by the U.S. government and NATO In in order to do what David Icke and others have said Is the problem, reaction, solution scenario Where you create a, a terrible problem Or you know at least one that's fairly urgent in some way And you know what kind of reaction the people are going to have When they become the victims of that problem And then you step in as the savior With the solution to the problem that you created And that's exactly what happens when excuse me, when uh, major terrorism coming out of Al-Qaeda and now ISIS is funded and armed by the U.S. government and its allies. You get a pretty pressing problem That when they're committing mass murder all over the Middle East and now moving into Europe and into the U.S. with the obvious cooperation of the allied governments who are helping them, giving them plenty of money, make sure they get in illegally with no problem, this is now called immigration instead of being called illegal immigration. It's just called immigration so that um, if you complain about it, then you're against immigrants, which is completely ridiculous because most, most people in America <clears throat> either are in immigrants or are descended from immigrants unless they're Native Americans. Everybody else is pretty much has come in through immigration. But if immigration is controlled... And there's a legal process to make sure that you're not coming in to, you know, blow up cities or do uh, suicide attacks of various kinds or that you're not uh, committed to a cause to destroy Western society, then it's a lot better than if you just let people in, as they say, unvetted. So for some reason, you know, the Muslim religion had been chosen, at least this part of it, the violent part of it, had been chosen as an instrument to destroy Western civilization And you can see It's not really a theory you, you can easily observe it happening And you've got crimes Especially all over Western Europe Or what I think used to be Western Europe It's something else now And you've got violent crime Like murder and rape And uh, carjacking And blocking freeways And stealing things out of um, Trucks and delivery trucks And things like that And a lot of it Is in the name of um, I hope my voice holds out, it's tired Uh, Is in the name of Allah And you got people shooting police and screaming Allah Akbar And that's not disconnected from Islam As much as Western media would like you to think it is And it's clear that all of the Primary Western so-called leaders Obama and leaders of all the European and British countries and everybody around that area Even some of the countries in other areas are all cooperating to say this has nothing to do with Islam And they're facilitating massive immigration of millions of, of people that contain a significant percentage of jihadis And that means Muslims who are committed to coming in and um, carrying out violent, violent invasion and murder and rape and I mean especially in places like uh, Sweden and parts of Scandinavia other than Sweden You can see mass rapes happening uh, Violent attacks and rapes and they're they're all being done by these Muslim immigrants And the government is saying it's the fault of the Swedish people uh, It's the fault of the Swedish women because they should try to look less attractive and they should You know, hide celebrations of various kinds The the Germans should not have Oktoberfest out in the open anymore They should hide it inside Because it might upset the Muslim invaders I'm not going to say immigrants Because normal immigrants Are really happy to uphold the country they immigrate to They want to become part of it They're not trying to take it over When they're trying to take it over That's called an invasion Okay, and the The media is trying to misuse language So that if you fall for it And you're just sitting there hypnotized in front of your television In a very low state of consciousness As it's programming you to to be in Then you're just going to start changing language So that you don't even really have the ability to understand what's happening anymore And if you combine that with drinking fluoride Which is something we talk about on this program Uh, And eating GMO food and even eating food that is fertilized with chemical fertilizers which then require pesticides because it's nutritionally unbalanced and it attracts uh, insects whose job is to eliminate inferior crops. And you understand how all that fits together. And you're doing a lot of other things that are kind of downgrading your health. That always downgrades your consciousness at the same time because the same blood supply... That goes through the rest of your body Is the same blood that goes through your heart and your brain And your brain is what you're supposed to use to think with And so, you know, health and mental clarity really do have a connection So it's assumed as you're being poisoned by the air, water and food And propaganda and other ways by the power structure right now physically that you're also going to be listening to um, the misinformation that says, as as Obama was quoted, and I watched him say this on TV, he said that the the uh, immigrants coming into the U.S. are mostly widows and orphans, and the um, heartless people who are worried about it are just you know not even American and have, have no compassion. It, it's it's complete nonsense. You know, it's a large percentage of military-age men, as Alex Jones not only points out, but videotapes. And he has talked to uh, Border Patrol on the southern border of the U.S., where not just Mexican illegal aliens are coming in, but people from all over the place. And jihadis coming in there as well. And also coming in right on the airplanes into airports in New York and other places with no problem. And then they get supported to come in Get on welfare and start planning Whatever attacks they're going to do in the US When they're ready So I wanted to understand all this stuff You know, not just be upset about it But, and I certainly don't have anything Against Muslims at all I mean, I I hope you understand that I'm complete Well, first of all, Muslim Islam is not a race So even if you are against Islam It's not racism But I'm not against Muslim people I'm not against people of any religion or race at all Um, But I did want to understand what's happening And you can object to a belief system And not hate the people who are in it Those are two totally separate issues And we're trying to be discouraged from Seeing what Islam teaches By being told you're racist Which is completely ridiculous Because any race can join Islam And um, you're being Islamophobic Which means technically You're being unrealistically afraid of Islam Which also makes no sense Because if there's some reason that This brand of Islam that's coming in Is coming in to kill you I mean I don't advocate fear of anything Even someone who's going to kill you But there, it's not unreasonable To have some concern about people Who are coming in by the thousands and millions Into Europe and the US many of whom have the intent to destroy the cultures they're entering instead of support them. So I thought, well, we need some education on this and not just go with stories or, you know, hearsay. Certainly not the garbage that the media um, puts out every day, but whatever is true. So I actually, I have a lot of Muslim friends whom I really like and who treat me, Respectfully and like family themselves They're not like jihadis to say the least And I asked them and I asked other Well known Muslim people to come on the radio Come on Lost Arts Radio and explain What is going on And um, none of them would And I noticed a theme in all their responses And that theme was They were all genuinely afraid to talk about the situation on the air And some of them understood what the situation was And they had more than the average knowledge Within the Muslim community Of what the details of Muslim, of uh, Allah and, and Muhammad What their teachings were And they didn't want to come on And I eventually found out that the reason was That in Islam one of the things that you have to understand Is if you go out saying things that are Going to give Islam a bad name in some way Even if they're true it doesn't matter The fact that you're saying something That is going to tarnish its reputation Means that you're subject to retribution And that could be extremely violent And you could end up um, not in very good shape Or not in your physical body anymore Uh, Things could happen to people connected with you It is not encouraging to just go on and start talking so they all declined. But I still felt like I wanted us to get our education, you know, because I like to learn about everything and make your decisions from a point of actually knowing something and not just run off on an emotional tangent that may turn out to be based on false information. So I was watching Alex Jones's program one day. I've watched him on and off for 16 years. And I have great admiration for the work he's doing, even though lots of people hate him and certainly the entire power structure hates him. Hillary Clinton actually came out and named him on national TV as a terrible, crazy person that uh, just misrepresented everything he says and tried to get everybody hating him, which of course will backfire because many, probably a million extra people will suddenly start watching uh, his shows which are on six days a week and I recommend them And I'm not getting paid to do that okay it's because I think they're good But um, so the point was I, I I was watching Alex's show and I saw this scholar named Dr. Bill Warner come on He's actually he's not like a a doctor of religion or religious studies or uh, Officially trained in Islam by the power structure Of the university indoctrination system He's an engineer physicist Who's just really good at studying and analyzing things And organizing them And he realized that the issue of Islam And trying to understand what it is What its history is and what its future probably is At least what it would like its future to be Is very important because there are these mass waves of illegal immigration um, Many m- many of the people in which are not just Muslims But they're Muslims ready to um, engage in military conflict Against the country they're entering And he thought, wow, nobody understands what's going on I better find out And he looked at the Quran Which is the one of the three main uh, Muslim scriptures that people have heard of in the West And he tried to read it And he realized it was arranged so as to be incomprehensible And what he eventually found out Was that the chapters were all separated By one of the caliphs that followed Muhammad Which we'll talk to him about tonight Because he's going to be our guest in a few minutes here And that caliph arranged the chapters Longest to shortest Nothing to do with the timeline Making it virtually impossible to coordinate what the Quran says With what was going on in Muhammad's life And those things are completely correlated And you have to see them in the same timeline To understand what they're talking about So he reorganized the material There's a massive amount of absolute repetition in there He cut that down to The things, you know If there were a thousand repetitions of something He made it one or two And he organized the whole thing So that it was clear in the real timeline Not repeating over and over indefinitely But so that you could actually read it And grasp what you're reading And he did that with the Quran He also uh, clarified the two other major Sacred books of Islam Which is the Sirah and the Hadith Which is respectively the life of Muhammad And what they call Muhammad's traditions And the traditions are just every detail in his life Because if you're a good Muslim Which you need to be if you're in Islam at all Then what you use for your model of ideal life Is Muhammad's life So you have to understand his life supposedly I mean a lot of them don't but you're supposed to And you have to look through every one of his habits or traditions and try to copy it At least if you're a man and if you're a woman You have to look at how the women would have the most uh, spiritually uh, advanced and, and valuable lives In harmony with the men and filling the roles that are prescribed for them in Islam And everything is prescribed in Islam It's a complete system of life now Dr. Warner has kind of separated it out into two major parts One is the religious part And the other is what he calls the political part And we're going to get into that when we talk tonight But I want to just you know, say up, up front That I, I differ from Dr. Warner in what I've learned And I've read all of his books And I've read the Quran and the other original material And my impression is that it's not part religion and part political it's all religion and the reason i say that is because you, when we start talking about the jihadis and go back and listen to the archives see what we've talked about already because you don't want to miss that you won't understand the present as well um, you don't get these people willing to die unless they're guaranteed they're going to go to paradise if they strap bombs onto their chest And walk into a train station and kill everybody Men, women and children Normally people would hesitate to do that Even if they had no morals of their own Because they really wouldn't want to go to the gas chamber or life in prison But with Muslims if they follow what Muhammad taught Precisely in an orthodox manner Which is what he wanted everybody to do And made that very clear And he also made it clear that it came not from him but from Allah And that he, Allah, sorry, and he was just a a messenger, then you go ahead and strap those bombs on and you walk into that train station, you kill all those kids and women and men, and you go straight to paradise. This is not politics, in my mind. This is religion. Because without the religious part, you're not going to feel very good about that deal. The thing that makes a deal attractive is where you get to go, and the way paradise is described is pretty much like the most luxurious part of physical life. What it could possibly be? You get you get to eat wonderful fruits and sweets and all these great f- foods and drinks all the time. You get lots of sex. You you know it just you get to be comfortable, lie around in hammocks all the time, be in beautiful places in nature. I mean, it sounds. If that's all you're aware of it sounds fantastic And so that's what the warriors get when they go and kill everybody who's not a Muslim And Muhammad made it very clear in the Quran and the other two scriptures The Sira and the Hadith That to, to be totally fair you're supposed to give everybody a chance to convert To the only religion that's true which is Islam And then, of course, if they don't, it's their own fault and they have to either be murdered and all their property stolen, which can be divided up among, between Muhammad and the people who do the killing. And um, you take the women and kids as slaves and sex slaves, which Muhammad did, and that's how you conduct your life. And the purpose of it, you know, yeah, you have to have... Slaves and sex slaves and all that And just put up with all those things But your real purpose is Allah has told you that nobody should be left on earth Who's not a Muslim It's totally clear So they can either be killed or enslaved Or convert And even after they're enslaved I mean the the ones who are killed go to hell of course Because they're not Muslims But and other religions have the similar belief too That if you miss your chance to be the right religion You're going to hell forever But in Islam that's definitely the case But the people who get enslaved Because they wouldn't convert They can always convert later So if they try out slavery for a while Or being a sex slave for a while And it's not that great and they want to change they do, They're given the compassionate grace That they can become a Muslim And all they have to do is say that um, mu- that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah Who's, who's the only God And um, there's no other God except Allah And you're done You're saved from being a slave So it was a very attractive system You get to die or be a slave Or you can convert which is really easy And the only little detail in the fine print which a lot of modern Muslims seem to be not so aware of, is that if you're called to jihad, which is the heavy work of killing everybody in the world who's not a Muslim, so that you can fulfill what Allah, what His instructions were, if you get called to that, you got to go do it. You have to support terrorists, sorry, uh, religious, you know, purists who are killing everybody. Or else you're going to go to hell too And you might be killed before that And plus once you join If you ever decide you want to unjoin Forget it You're going to to die If they can get to you Because I mean that doesn't happen in America Right at the moment so much Because their religion is not really The numbers are not high enough To enforce the law That says that But according to their own law If you try to leave and convert out of Islam You have to be killed It's for everybody's good So this is the kind of thing That started becoming clear Because I read all of Dr. Warner's books I didn't want to try to interview him Or discuss this with him And have no idea what I was talking about And I had no preconception One way or the other about Islam I just wanted to know Like with everything else Like with you know How I've investigated health and other aspects of science Which are all tied together I didn't decide beforehand what I wanted to find out That's what you're taught to do in modern science So you can work for a drug company or a biotech company And tell the whole population it's all great But I don't really have any attraction to that kind of science So I just wanted to know the truth about what Islam taught uh, I I had read the Quran already before I Ever heard of Dr. Warner But I didn't understand it Because of the reorganization um, That I mentioned that had happened Where all the chapters were taken Out of t- out of the correct timeline And I thought the jihadis That were on the news Were just a bunch of insane killers And I really didn't get the connection To the religion Because the Muslims I knew in America Were incredibly great people And they still are And I'm good friends with them And so it made no sense that the people throwing gays off roofs, and cutting Christians' head off heads off, and blowing up ancient art, you know ruins and temples stuff like that that in my mind could have no connection to Islam. But I did want to find out. So and, and you know as far as I knew from the friends I had, Islam was totally about peace, and Allah who was God. Wouldn't be into murder And wouldn't want mass rapes Like are happening in Sweden And other places by the Muslim invaders So you know What was going on was my question But then before I got in touch With Dr. Warner And borrowed him from Alex As a guest I noticed that some even on video Some Muslim leaders um, Imams Were um, Advocating the killing of gays on video. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe I'm not entirely correct about it having no connection to the religion. And this one imam that got more famous than he probably wanted to, his video was circulated all over the place. Um, he was in a very unusual voice. It was almost like a whining voice, but it was saying, it was, it was a voice like I would have imagined. Did you read the um, or see the movie about the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings? That was a great adventure movie and had a lot of super good symbolism and things like that. And there was a guy, a counselor to King Theoden, whose name was Wormtongue. Grima was his real name, and it reminded me of Grima, because this imam was saying, and you know, the there's nothing to feel bad about. The penalty for homosexuality is death. And you have to have compassion on them when you're killing them. And he wasn't kidding. And he wasn't the only imam talking like that. And I noticed also government leaders in Europe were protecting the invaders who were killing their people. So I thought, what's going on with that? And even in Sweden where the mass... Rapes by the Muslim invaders were going on The Swedish government was saying Was blaming the Swedish women for getting raped Similar to what the Muslims do in their countries And in the Middle East, I mean And um, Telling them also that it's the fault of the Swedish men So what's going on? There's some massive conspiracy Among the top so-called leaders of these countries and I wanted to know what it was about. And then it went further. And the European leaders started arresting the people who would complain about the immigration. In fact, there was a famous a famous case of uh, the uh, essentially libertarian-like candidate in France, Marie Le Pen, I think was her name, is her name. And she was saying the invasion of the Muslims was more dangerous or at least as dangerous as what was happening in in World War II when when uh, the Germans were invading France and so she got arrested and she all she did was express a very observant opinion thinking that there might be still free free speech in France so they arrested her and I thought wait a minute you know what's going on with that and that was the point at which I think I found Dr. Warner by seeing him on Alex's show Because I try to keep up with what Alex is reporting on news And he's got incredible guests I mean There's no way that I can Bring anything like the value that Alex Brings on Lost Arts Radio with all the The 50 people in his crew And the worldwide guests but I do get a lot of great guests who come from Alex's show onto Lost Arts Radio And we're really fortunate for that So I call up Dr. Warner and once I realized, you know, first of all, I asked him to do one show. And then um, I realized the incredible knowledge and value that he had. And I asked him, since Dr. Cousins and others have done a series of shows on our, on our program, I said, why don't you do a series on, on Islam and teach all of us, you know, the details that we haven't gotten? Even a lot of Muslims that I know don't know. Through no fault of their own, it's so complex, and the de- all of the detail of what is in the scre- three scriptures. They have great supportive communities. They have nice lives. They have good friends. All the Muslims in their community support and help each other. It, it reminds me of the Amish in some way. And don't Amish don't kill me. I'm not saying anything bad to you. I'm saying that there are some great positive qualities of any good community that are present in American. Muslim communities that I have contact with. They have celebrations, they take good care of their kids. they wear normal clothes. the women aren't in black beekeeper suits as Alex says. they, they just the women drive cars. Um, you know they don't really know a lot of them what Islam actually requires them to do in their life. So I wanted Dr. Warner to explain that. Um, what's in the three sacred books? So he's a mathematician physicist as I mentioned He's the one who did this incredible work of organization Of the Muslim uh, scriptures So that everybody can study them And I absolutely believe I agree with our government believe it or not That in our schools they should teach Islam But not how to convert to Islam Unless of course you want to They should teach what it actually says And that's not being done So, Dr. Warner, who calls himself a dissident scholar, meaning that he's not being politically correct, he's just actually being a real scientist and telling whatever he discovers and telling the truth. He gets threats and intimidation and uh, they tell him to shut up and be quiet. So, you know, we just put out a video about the proper response to intimidation. You can see it on our site and YouTube. And it's about the holistic doctors and the message implicit in those murders that we all have to shut up and not tell the truth about health because we interfere with the death business called the healthcare system in the U.S. So we decided the best response to that is just do the opposite, you know, treat it like government guidance and uh, publicize it everywhere as long as we can anyway. So we asked Dr. Warner on the show. And invited him to do a whole series of shows, a class on Islam Uh, The first time it was just introductory, the last time it was the life of Muhammad, really interesting, I recommend you listen to it And this time we're going to talk about, in lesson two, the history after the death of Muhammad And that starts now, so let's go uh, see what Dr. Warner has to say And I have some important things that I probably don't have time for, but I'm going to try to get them to you after we're done with this discussion. I'll talk to you then. Hi, everybody. This is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. We're here in uh, the virtual living room with our friend Dr. Bill Warner. This is our show for Sunday, the 28th of August, 2016. Really glad that you're with us. And we've started getting into these uh, educational series lately. It seems to me they're really valuable and I feel extremely privileged to be right in the middle of it and get some real education since I went through the indoctrination training that most of you did and you know this is our chance to have an antidote for that and actually learn more of what's really going on so that we can decide you know positive contributions we can make to the world during our lives you know based on knowing what's actually you know the reality of it so um, if you Recall Dr. Bill Warner Has been kind enough to Share some time with us Teaching us about uh, What Islam actually teaches And in not just the Quran But all three sacred scriptures Of the Quran, the Sirah And the Hadith um, About Muhammad And about Allah And it's, it's the most Authoritative source that we have For what Islam really involves So You know, just to clarify, because I've gotten some comments over the last weeks since we started this, and you should go back and listen to the previous two archives of Lost Arts Radio with Dr. Bill Warner, which you can find at lostartsradio.com on our website. Um, Just to clarify for those questions, this is absolutely nothing, even remotely, against uh, any people of the Islam faith or Muslims, because... um, Anyone born into the Muslim faith in their family is uh, becomes a Muslim and is trained into that from very young. And most of the ones that I know, in fact all of the ones that I know that are Muslims, that are friends of mine, are incredible people that I find inspirational and treat me like family very kindly. But there's some people in the Muslim faith that are doing some things that are less friendly. And it's being orchestrated by the powers in our government and others that are allied with it. And we need to understand what's going on with that. And I thought that since I had only read the Quran once and not really understood it, I needed somebody to come in and help me understand how the whole picture goes together. What not people's opinion of Islam was, but what Muhammad said it was, and what he reported that Allah said it was. And Bill Warner was the... Uh, person that I found who, who could help us from an expert point of view. So we're going to go into Chapter 2 of Islam 101 tonight, uh, so-called by our radio show, and it's going to be um, the history of Islam after Muhammad died. We covered his life last time. Welcome, Bill, and thank you very much for taking the time to help us with this.
1: Glad to be here, and thanks for having a curiosity about what I think is a fascinating subject.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that, and I realize how little I really knew. So, um, last time, you know, people can go back and hear the archive, but we ended more or less with, with the death of Muhammad. I believe he died in his 60s, right? And after that, uh, a lot of things happened, the first of which was probably the uh, four caliphs that were in succession after him. So, why don't we start somewhere around there, wherever makes sense to you.
1: Well, we need to understand that we're going to talk about Islam after Muhammad died, but the important thing to know is, is that the Islam after Muhammad died is the same Islam that was while Muhammad was living. Okay. And that is because the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, the Sunnah of Muhammad is his perfect pattern of life. There are 91 verses in the Quran which say that every Muslim, and for that matter, every human being, is supposed to live just exactly like Muhammad, have his kind of family life, be a father like him, be a jihadist like him, and that everything he did is the perfect example of how to lead a pious life. Now, when I say pious here, most people may think of uh, some quiet prayer, but his piety included jihad, which had one of its manifestations of of being war. So, what the first caliph, who was Abu Bakr, and by the way, we have another caliph alive today who is also called Abu Bakr, that's the caliph of Islamic State, but uh, the first caliph uh, was Muhammad's best friend and father-in-law, because Abu Bakr was the father of Aisha, who Muhammad married at six and consummated at nine. She was his favorite wife. Okay. So, Abu Bakr, when he died, had an immediate internal problem. And his internal problem was this. There were many people who had become Muslim, tribal chieftains in particular, who now said that Muhammad was dead. Well, the whole business of being a Muslim was fine, and we pledged allegiance to Muhammad, but now Muhammad is dead, and so we're going to be leaving Islam. And Abu Bakr said, no, you will not be leaving Islam. And so the apostasy wars were fought. Now, apostasy, uh, going into Islam is a one-way door. It's very easy to become a Muslim. All you have to do is go down to the mosque and repeat in Arabic, there is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet in front of witnesses, and you're a Muslim. End of discussion. So it's very easy to enter, but you cannot leave. It's a little bit like that line from Hotel California, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Right. So Abu Bakr, the apostasy wars in Arabic is Rita, so the Rita wars were his first piece of business. But after he killed enough Muslims who wanted to leave, the remainder of the people who had become Muslims found themselves quite satisfied with being a Muslim. Okay. So once he had internal strength, he then started doing what Muhammad did as well. Muhammad was the worst neighbor you could have because he would attack you. And all you had to do was just be there. For instance, in the Jews of Kaibar, who were about, oh, I think 150 miles from Medina where Muhammad lived, he got a small army together and went and attacked them. What had they done to him? Absolutely nothing. They were just his nearest neighbor. So once Muhammad had conquered the Arabian Peninsula, or in particular the Hejaz, which is central Arabia, he then started attacking his next neighbor. It has been said that the Chinese empire has been based on the fact that you can own all the land that adjoins you, and that was Muhammad's pattern. After he had conquered the pagans of of, uh, Arabia and the Jews of Arabia and what few Christians were there, he then left Arabia and went into Syria. So, uh, Abu Bakr, following the Sunnah of Muhammad, the perfect example of Muhammad, launched attacks against those people who were not Muslims with the sole purpose of you have a choice of fighting and dying or defeating us, or submitting and paying a special tax, or converting. Those are the three choices given. Okay. And so, uh, but Abu Bakr dies soon after this, and. He is succeeded by a man who is to totally transform Islam. He had made Islam now strong internally and Umar became the second caliph and he was like a nuclear explosion out of uh, Arabia. He quickly conquered in uh, 10 years time Persia and most of the Middle East and Egypt and North Africa. A Brutal and brilliant thing to do. Now, once he's done this, he now has a problem. Genghis Khan uh, used to, when he would attack a city, he would just simply kill everybody in it. But Genghis Khan's uh, advisors told him, says, look, you're leaving death and destruction behind you. And worse than that, nobody's paying any taxes if you kill everybody. Well, Muhammad was, became aware of this as well. In his dealings with the Jews, the first three tribes of Jews in Medina either killed or exiled or enslaved, but the Jews of Kaibar he made a Demi, D-H-I-M-M-I, and that is you could continue to be a Jew or you could continue to be a Christian, but you had to live in a world that was dominated by Sharia. So this is what happened. The Christians who were conquered in the Middle East became Demis and basically continued to work and pay taxes to Islam.
0: Okay, so all the, all the countries that you mentioned, Persia, Egypt, North Africa, and most of the Middle East, the Christians who lived all through there, and I assume maybe the Jews if there were any, they all became dhimmis instead of having to die, right?
1: That's correct. Okay. Now, what Muhammad had to do, I'm sorry, what Umar had to do, he had a problem here. Let's go back and see who these Muslims are who are coming to conquer the world. Let's look at their architecture. We know from the sacred text in the Sunnah and the Hadith that the house that Muhammad lived in was (coughs) mud-baked, pardon me, the house that Muhammad lived in was basically sun-baked brick. Mm -hmm. This was not a sophisticated way of living. Um, So these people are now exploding out of Arabia, and they enter into the world of the Roman Empire except now it's been called the Byzantine Empire, which is a misnomer, but let's adopt the terminology because it's well understood. Okay. So the, these are conquered. And now then, what is he going to do? Well, he needs someone who's sophisticated, the conqueror needs someone who's sophisticated to run the business of government, collect taxes and whatnot. As a matter of fact, the Christian bishops were made collectors of the tax, which had a special name, the Giza. Okay. So now then, so what the Muslims did was to take and set up people in their place to run the business of running an empire because they did not have the sophistication to do this. And speaking of sophistication, by going into Damascus in Syria, they conquered the intellectual powerhouse of the Christian world. So this was the best scholarship in the Middle East, which was now theirs. It's important to know that the first book written in classical Arabic was the Quran. The point I'm making here is is that the Muslims who came out of Arabia were not what we would call sophisticated. They were primarily illiterate, and uh, we uns- I, I think we'll just stay with unsophisticated in any term of the, in any use of the term. Now they were incredible fighters because you see Muhammad solved the biggest problem of anybody who has an army. People don't want to die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Muhammad solved that problem if you died you went immediately to heaven the jihadist when dies goes immediately to heaven whereas a good Muslim if they die suffers the punishment of the grave and then the uncertainty of judgment day but if you die in jihad then you immediately are trans- taken directly into heaven okay. so Muhammad had solved the biggest problem a fighter has, uh, a general has which is getting people who are willing to die but these are unsophisticated people Now, let's stop right here. Islam gets a lot of credit for having its golden age and preserving knowledge and doing all these things, but let's talk just a little bit. How could a group of people who are warriors and tough fighters suddenly do the business of translating all the Greek classics into Arabic? Well, they didn't. It was the Christians, the Jews, and the Zoroastrians who did this work, and primarily it was the Christians. We hear, for instance, of the great... Incredible medical care that is the golden age happened in, in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter was, is that it was the Christians who ran the hospitals, it was the Christians who ran the schools. If you look at the curriculum that the Muslims ran in their even during the golden age, mostly what they studied was Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and Sharia. That is, they studied Islamic doctrine. Mm-hmm. So, this is uh, what happened with Umar. And by the way, Umar is was killed by a captive slave as it turns out there are going to be four rightly guided caliphs and three of them die in violence which is they were men who had a lot a violent life as what's the old saying live by the sword die Mm -hmm. by the sword yeah so uh, so this is the beginning of the Empire of Islam and it's going to have a characteristic which we need to talk about the turf that Islam conquered stayed Islamic This is very important because other empires, let's say take the British Empire, which at one time the sun never set on, when it collapsed, the people who they were in India and other such places just went back to doing what they were doing before the Brits came along. But when Islam collapses politically, the religion of Islam remains behind. That is, there's a transformation of the conquered people to become purely Islamic. This is a distinguishing characteristic of Islamic conquest. It, like becoming a Muslim, is a one-way process. When a civilization becomes Islamicized, it, too, permanently stays that. What few Christians are left in Syria today are being slaughtered on a daily basis. So that is a brief introduction into the conquest by first Abu Bakr and then um, Umar so uh maybe we'll pause here for a moment because i've said a lot Do you have any questions
0: yeah yeah um and I, i'm really trying to you know not cut in while you're talking but there are some interesting oh do points. so um one one of them is um the point that you made the last point that you made about um you know in comparison for example to the british empire which uh you know lost many of its conquests later on um India being probably the largest example, but other ones, America being another one, and you know, there are many. And that doesn't happen in Islam. Now, that's not because the conquerors from England or other places are not willing to engage in violence. So, what do you think the reason really is? Well, because
1: England fought military wars, Islam fights civilizational wars. Muhammad was the most brilliant warrior who ever lived. He has no equal anywhere in history. No one today dies for Julius Caesar. No one today dies for Napoleon or Alexander the Great. They simply don't do that. Mm -hmm. Those were military men. Muhammad, only one of his aspects was military. The other thing is is that Islam brings a complete civilization. And it establishes that the the people who are ruled are discriminated against and are, because part of being a Demi is that you can be humiliated. Mm-hmm. If you're enslaved, you're not to be humiliated. You're to be treated well. But the Demi is humiliated, and there's a whole process of humiliation that goes on and on and on in enormous detail. A Demi can't carry a sword, can only carry a knife, can't mm-hmm. ride a horse, can only ride a burrow or a, a donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, the church bells are not allowed to ring loud. Uh, church singing cannot be heard outside of the church. You can't carry a Bible so it can be seen. You're not allowed to convert a Muslim, but Muslims can convert Christians. So there's a degradation process. A Demi has no status in court. He can't testify against a Muslim. A, Christian cannot, a Demi cannot become the boss of Muslims. And the payment of the tax is connected with a process of humiliation, <clears throat> this varied from time to time, but the jizya, which had to be paid once a year, the Christian knelt down and held the money above his head, and he was slapped in the face, or his beard was pulled, and, and humiliated. And this is in a- abeyance to the Quranic verse, which refers to the demi, which is they are to be subjugated and humiliated. Oh. So now I want you to imagine that as a, you're a Christian, you're in, you're in Damascus, Syria, and here comes Islam and you lose the battle militarily now then there's a new government in place and there's a special tax taken called the jizya there is however a overwhelming difference in how you're treated you are not a citizen of the islamic empire you're a subject of the islamic empire And this process includes humiliation. And it routinely, for instance, rocks would be thrown at uh, a couple, for instance, if they were walking along by young street toughs, and they couldn't go to the cops about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this process of humiliation meant that it was a grinding factor, and you were impoverished. So what happens over time? And by the way, this is what's called the tolerance of Islam. It is said by the people who are apologists for Islam. Oh, Islam was so tolerant. It had a place for the Christian. It had a place for the Jew. And they were not persecuted. No, they weren't persecuted. They were were taxed and humiliated. Okay. So what this happens over a period of time is, and Islam as a civilization has a way of doing everything, from food to how to say hello. All of these things are a process. When Islam comes along, it's process of civilizational war means that ev- the name, everything has changed. So this the domination of Islam over the other culture is absolutely complete. Okay. But it offers a way out. And what is the way out? Simply become a Muslim. Convert, right. And you could be a really grim guy and, a, and really a, one of Muhammad's chief enemies, but as soon as you converted, all was forgiven.
0: Okay. Except you can't just convert. You are on call to fight against the next uh, non-believers, right?
1: You become one of the conquerors. You become not just, you you change your name, you change everything. You now become, you become those who have conquered you. And so this process, when it gets through, we see, for instance, Turkey, which took a long time to conquer, but immediately the Muslims attempted, they attacked Turkey on the western border, and it took centuries. But finally... Turkey fell, and you don't really find Christians anymore in Turkey.
0: Okay. All right. So it sounds like there were two main factors that led to conquests becoming more permanent. And one of them was that the completeness of the code that that dominated and and detailed every part of life, and that included getting to humiliate and uh, abuse the Dimmies. which made the people in that position feel maybe dominant and important and and an incentive to keep that system going. And the other was that for the enforcers of the whole system, he he made all of life part of the religion. So Mm -hmm. that if you did the apparently political or military parts correctly, then you don't just get a raise, you go to paradise.
1: Right and by the way this is interesting there is no shame of the muslim incorporated in any of this for instance uh there are those who shame the white man for how he treated the the native americans made them go to india made them go to school and learn english for instance is something that's been a criticism that criticism is never is never made against muslims and here's the reason why Christians can be shamed and humiliated over the, over the ill treatment of others because of the golden rule. Islam does not have a golden rule. Allah wants the Christians to be humiliated. So therefore, there's never any process of going back and looking and saying, oh, you, we, we see uh, Europe and England, for instance, are gripped with a sort of distaste for what is their history that they conquered other people's. Muslims don't suffer from that. They were supposed to conquer other people. Allah says they were to conquer other people. Muhammad conquered other people. So therefore, there's not any source of self-criticism about this process of annihilation of civilizations.
0: Is that kind of because non-Muslims are actually not up to the normal human level? They're subhuman. And okay. so you're, well, you're, you're really not abusing another human being. But if you give bad treatment to another Muslim, then you do have something like the golden rule in a way, right?
1: Yes. A Muslim is to treat another Muslim well. Now, let me be very clear here. This does not mean that every Muslim abused every Christian. What Islam offers is a choice. That is, you could be very – a Muslim in Damascus and Syria could be very friendly with a Christian – it's just that he had an ethical option. If he wanted to, he could humiliate. Okay. So that's what makes this so confusing. It was not an endless cruelty or an endless humiliation. It was always a dynamic between being friendly and being humiliated. All these options were open. So what appears on the surface to be another nice way of living is there's a threat that lurks behind Okay. It's almost like living next door to a mafia member who can be friendly, cheerful, come over, have a beer with you while you cook. But if you cross him in the wrong way, bad things can happen.
0: Okay, so that, that's really a strong element of the uh, structure that gave the Muslim invaders the power that they came yes. moving in.
1: Well, let, let's, let's establish, let's go back to something which I think was in the first lecture. Is the beauty of Islam in terms of its power is it is dualistic. That is, it can be friendly or it can be very harsh. And both of them are pure Islam. Islam is the religion of peace, but it is the politics of jihad. And but jihad here, by the way, we need to understand something. It's not just war. Harb is war, H-A-R-B. Okay. Jihad means the pressure, the force. And so the jihad goes on constantly. For instance, we see jihad being practiced in America today. The, not of the sword and the bomb and the machete, but more that's practiced in the sense of, well, nobody should be allowed to train law enforcement except Muslims. So there is that, that is a, that is a kind of jihad that's being practiced in America today. I bring this up because there was a big ruckus, I think, in San Bernardino or something where a non Muslim offered to train the police force. And mm-hmm. the Muslims say, oh, that, that you can't do that. Only Muslims can talk about. Uh, Islam. So this statement that only Muslims can teach about Islam, and I'm told that myself. Oh, you don't know anything about Islam because you're not a Muslim. Mm-hmm. So, there yeah. Is, uh, okay. Is so you Islam didn't mean jihad. just
0: you didn't mean just train the police force in general. You mean train the police force about Islam? Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: Okay. That was just, that was a news event today where. Oh, okay. uh Care C A I R Co- Committee on American Islamic Relations, which. S- Uh, says that it's a civil rights group, but it's actually a a jihadi group, not in the sense of... There's four kinds of jihad, sword, word, both written and spoken, and then money. And it's the other kinds of jihad that are the most damaging to a society, not the jihad of the sword.
0: Hmm. Okay. All right. And so I would imagine when they teach about... Islam to a police force or any group like that within a society that they're coming into, what they teach would depend on the degree of saturation, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. And by the way, I know what they teach. Uh, I sort of sit in a peculiar chair, I'm a dissident scholar, Mm -hmm. and there are those who say, we can talk to this guy. I've heard uh, hidden tape recorders record what the Muslims teach the police force, and what they teach the police force is very simple. There's Jihad is not the real jihad. Is spiritual struggle, and this jihad of the sword—that's not really jihad, right? And now what they teach teach is, er, that would be what they teach.
0: That would be what they teach early on, before yes. they have enough numbers to teach the rest of the story. Right?
1: Yes, but the first part of the story is: Oh, we're persecuted people. We're, Muslims are the victims, uh, and uh, we're we're a peaceful. We're re- the religion of peace. By the way, Richard. Do you know of any other religion that's called the religion of peace? For instance, does anybody say, oh, the Buddhism, that's the religion of peace? I've
0: it's never, ironic. I've never heard that phrase until it was describing Islam. Yes.
1: Which is an interesting fact within itself. Yeah. But, so anyway, jihad is, it works across many forms, and the, and, uh, but the ultimate of jihad is to pressure a person into becoming Muslim. I mean, it's it's all about that. They're very big on on converting everybody.
0: Okay. Okay, so I would imagine, you know, in line with your comment about what they're teaching the police force about being the religion of peace, that once there are, you know, I don't know what percentage of incoming people within Islam in the American society – at at the point when they get numerous enough then they would teach the police something very different.
1: Well, it all depends on what their needs are. In civilizational war, which is what jihad is, it is brilliant. It is very adaptive. It is more an ideological war. The war that we're fighting here is ideological in nature, not military in nature. We will never defeat Islam with bullets and bombs. That's the tragedy of Iraq and Afghanistan. We've gone into the, if we're going to fight wars against Islam, would it not do well to study what Islam's uh, war method is? There are, I have a book on my shelf called The Quranic Concept of War, and in it, it goes very deep into the fact that the most important part of jihad is destroying the will to fight in the enemy you're facing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how this is done through the use of deception, and, uh, and 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 by the way, the other part about the, in the Middle East, the reason that the Christianity collapsed is, is that Islam includes not just military force of jihad, but remember the jihad is a struggle that includes pen and word, and that and so what happens is is that the Christianity there's a theological attack as well, because Muhammad the Quran is very clear that the Christians in the form that most people think of a Christian being that is seeing Jesus as part of the Trinity, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected. the Islam says that's all bogus, mm-hmm. that's all BS. Right. So the attack is across all fronts, intellectual, emotional, theological, in every way. I'll say it again. Islam, his concept of civilizational war is brilliant and has no equal in any other civilization.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting to me that, that you say... That these people who started, uh, were, the, were the original fighters for Islam, were not sophisticated. And yet, they became part of the foundation of the most sophisticated machine of conquering that mm-hmm. existed in any time.
1: That is quite correct.
0: So, that, Yeah, I don't know what that means psychologically, because they had the ability to be very sophisticated, clearly. It just was mostly focused in one area.
1: Now, what happened, by the way, is, of course, as time goes on, and the Christians become Muslim, and the Muslims become more sophisticated until finally you do achieve a civilization, which in Baghdad was called the Golden Age, uh, that does have a degree. The Muslims, look, they're not stupid. They're human beings. They Mm -hmm. have come out of the deserts of Arabia not being very sophisticated, but they very quickly became sophisticated.
0: Okay. So, did we... Um, did we get all the way through what Umar had done, his main...
1: We've uh, we've only covered 10 years of Umar. Okay. Uh, Next, what happens is is that Uthman comes along. Now, Uthman's going to come to a bad end and after a very little time, but he does two things which are very important. He does not conquer much more territory, but he sets up another method of paying warriors. The method of Umar, which was the method of Muhammad, was the government got 20%, and the soldiers divide up the other 80%. Mm -hmm. That's what Muhammad did. He made jihad a money-making business. He made Islam a money-making business. Uthman came up with more the idea of basically paid soldiers. Uh, He also did one thing which was exceedingly important, which was this. By the time we get to Uthman, we now have had over 15 years of fighting by the original muslims who came out of arabia a lot of them were being killed now the first quran was only written down on scraps of paper the shoulder blades the palm leaves and in the hearts of men so what happened is is that more and more reciters of the quran are killed and so there was a problem on what to do about the fact that the quran needed to be written down and so Uthman was the one who ordered the Quran written down, and he appointed a secretary, Zaid, to do this work. Now, there's something very important about the formation of the Quran. After there were known variations of the Quran. Now, one of the theological positions that Islam has is there's only one Quran, it has no variation, and the Jewish Torah has variation, and the Gospels have, and letters of have variation, and so therefore their scripture is is superior because there's no variation in it. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, it's not true. There are variations. They're small, but they're there. But listen to what Uthman did. He called in every known Quran and every scrap of paper that dealt with the Quran, and a new one was produced. The next thing he did was he had all the source material burned. Okay. Now, why would he do that? Well, because some of the source material was contradicted by the resultant recension, which is really the technical word to use here because uh, Uthman didn't just have it transcribed. He cooked the books a bit and made it what he needed to have. Mm -hmm. So Uthman is uh, the producer. What we have today that's called the Quran would more properly be called Uthman's recension. The original Quran of Muhammad had a story behind it. But the new Quran does not have a story. What they did was they bound the book up, starting with the longest chapter and going to the shortest chapter. What this means is, is that there is no storyline in the Quran. The Qurans that I sell have the storyline reestablished, because what I do is I integrate Muhammad's life in with the Quran, and so therefore my Qurans unfold just as the Quran unfolded under Muhammad, the prophet of
0: Islam. So yeah,
1: my my Qurans are called a re, a reconstructed Quran of Muhammad.
0: Yeah, I, having read the ones that you wrote, I would highly recommend them to everybody because uh, it all makes sense. I mean, you can understand the exactly history, how the Quran uh, evolved, you know, through Muhammad and and what it what it related to that was happening in history and in his life at the time.
1: Exactly. It, so it's when you amazing. read mine, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can't imagine that Uthman did this to make it easier to understand.
1: Well you see, what happens is is that the Quran substitutes complexity for subtlety and profoundness. If it's so hard to understand it must be profound. Mm-hmm. Sure. Maybe also it's so hard to understand because it's badly edited, and when I say badly edited I mean the the hadith tell us Ali says, and he's going to be the fourth caliph, we'll get to him in a moment. Ali said, I know this place and time of the revelation of every verse. And when you read the Quran in the right way, that is parallel with the life of Muhammad, you understand that the Quran solves a lot of Muhammad's problems that he's having on the ground. As a matter of fact, ultimately, most of the Quran is solving Muhammad's problems. So, Muhammad's life is the cause and the Quran is the effect.
0: Okay, yeah, and, and we could give some examples of that. I, I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, well, I want to make a, a comment. You said that uh, the Qur'an, as organized by Uthman, substituted complexity for subtlety, and, and that was often easily mistaken for you know the fact that it, it must have great deep meaning, uh, just because it was not, comprehensible easily and I've noticed in in my own experience that that exact principle has been picked up by modern higher education in the US. You know you're right. (laughs) Anyway, I I know that's another story but the other question I wanted to mention er, er, ask you is you know we jumped from Abu Bakr to Umar to Uthman without mentioning whether you know, what's the succession process like? Does one die ah, and the other one start? Or what, ah. How does that work, you know? Well, you've touched on a serious piece of
1: business here that's caused Islam problems ever since. In the Quran, it says every Muslim must leave a will. And as a matter of fact, the Sharia writes a will for you, basically. Okay. But Muhammad up and died and left no method for how to choose a new leader. That is, he said nothing about it. So what they did was there was dissension within the Muslims in Arabia between those in Mecca and those in Medina, and this was an old separation, and it continued. And so there was a lot of talk. Some wanted to have two sets of leaders, one for the Medinans and one for the Meccans. But the those who wanted the thing wanted to have one caliph, one ruler, because Muhammad was the ruler of all. Won that argument. And it was basically a process of of just horse trading and picking and choosing and seeing who we can get to do this. So they made it up as they went was exactly what they did.
0: Okay, well, did they do something that other religions do and say that the selection is made by God or Allah?
1: You know, now that I'm thinking about that, I don't think so. I do remember that, that uh, Abu Bakr said... If you are to judge me by the Sunnah of Muhammad and the Quran, if I do what is basically Islamic, you're to obey me, and if I do not, you're to correct me and tell me that I'm wrong. Now, these exact words were spoken by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the current caliph of uh, Islamic State. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, there was no good way to do it. And so what happened is now there's some people, you've asked the question at precisely the right time, because there's some people who were backing Ali, who was Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, who said he had been a Muslim longer than anybody else, and that it was now time for Ali to be caliph. Well, there was a lot of, and so when, uh, when Umar got it, the Ali clan, or those who backed Ali, were very irritated, and then when Uthman got it, they were irritated again. And so finally, on the fourth try,
0: Ali becomes the caliph. Did the other guys die, or were they still going? Oh
1: yeah, oh, oh, oh we didn't. Oh let's let's get rid of Uth, Let's get rid of Uthman first. And by the way, I may be pronouncing these names right. Every time I deal with Arabic speakers, they wince when I say any Arabic words, and I apologize for that. But okay. that's the penalty of being teaching yourself.
0: Yeah. So next week, if you have a chance, you can learn Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So Umar, Umar, we never heard what ultimately happened to him, and then Uthman. Well, he, also. he died a dog's death. Okay. He was killed by his
1: own people. Okay. One of them being the grandson of Abu Bakr. Hmm. His body was thrown on a trash pile, and the dogs ate part of his feet. Hmm. Then it was decided. Whoa! Wait a minute. This man was a companion of Muhammad. We can't leave him on the trash heap. And this all had to do with payments of, of uh, and payments of money to soldiers and who was being favored and not. But anyway, after Uthman is dragged off the trash heap and given a decent burial, uh, the new leader is Ali.
0: Wait, you? I, I thought you said Umar was the one who went through that. No,
1: they, the succession goes Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and then Ali.
0: Okay, but what ultimately happened to Umar, if that was Uthman?
1: Oh, Umar was stabbed by a slave. Oh, yeah, okay, you did say that. I'm sorry, okay. And so, so now then, Ali comes to power. This is the man that people have said all along, he should have been the ruler all the, all the one, all the same, all the time. There, I said it. So, we finally have the right man, and everybody should be happy. But, there's one person who is very unhappy, and that person is Aisha. Muhammad's favorite wife. Mm, okay. Because you see, Ali really irritated Aisha. There's a little story in the Quran, and it's in the Sirah, and it's in the Hadith, which is Muhammad, one of these war trips, would take his favorite wife, take a wife with him, and his favorite wife was Aisha. So she was taken on a, a battle, and she rode on top of a camel in a, I think it's called a howdah or a huda, basically a little... Uh, wicker basket so you can't be seen well it turns out that as they were getting ready to leave Aisha jumps out of the howda or huda however we want to pronounce it and she runs off behind a sand dune to go to, to relieve herself or wait a minute or it was very, she comes back and she dropped a bracelet so she went back I may not be telling this exactly right anyway the camel with the howda on it leaves and she's not in it well This is not discovered for some time, but it doesn't matter because there was a a soldier who comes along, finds her, and puts her on his camel and leads her in. Well, when he got back to Medina, tongues began to wag. This -hmm. is in the Quran. Tongues began to wag, and of course, it was imagined that here's a young warrior who's basically been all this time alone with Muhammad's wife, and so, well, was there any hanky-panky? Well... The gossip went around, and yeah, there had to be something happening. What happened? Well, the Quran comes down and tells, the settles the question. Remember I said that the Quran answered all of Muhammad's problems? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Allah says that she's innocent, and it sets up the terms for witnessing uh, sexual misconduct, and so people were given beatings, and Ali, in looking through this whole process, of was she guilty or not, before the Quran says she was not, basically says to Muhammad, divorce them all. Divorce them all. Doesn't make any difference. as many women out there. One woman's as good as another. And in particular, he beat one of Aisha's slaves, who I believe was a black woman, while Muhammad stood there in order to get information from Aisha about Aisha had she slept with the warrior who brought her home. And the interesting thing from the slave said, well, the worst I've seen of her is when I put her in charge of watching the dough while it rises, she fell asleep and the goat ate the (laughs) dough. Okay. So a little human. By the way, one of the things I love about studying the Hadith and the Sirah is you get all these little details about Muhammad's life. So anyway, so now Aisha has a grudge against Ali because Ali said, doesn't make any difference. Uh, Fire them all. Divorce Mm -hmm. them all and get new ones.
0: So there's bad blood there. Meaning all of Muhammad's wives, right? Yes. Okay, and he had 10 wives, as I remember.
1: Oh, 10 or 11. It's a bit vague on that. Okay, all right. So anyway, there's one war fought with Aisha. Now then, there's another war, and I'm a little vague on this, and I apologize. I don't have anything in front of me, and I'm talking from memory and some of this stuff I studied 10 years ago. Okay. There's a second war that's fought, and that has to do with the fact that Ali is killed, and then his sons are both killed as well. Now then, this creates a rift within Islam which is permanent because the Shia are the party of Ali. So now then, this civil war with, with Ali creates the Sunni-Shia split, and there's been bad blood between them ever since. So now we're through the first four caliphs, and we're now getting ready to go on the Umayyad uh, dynasty.
0: Okay, so you said Ali was, was killed in the, what you called the Second War, the one after...
1: There were, as I recall, there, were, there was more than one battle. There was the Battle of the Red Camel, I remember that one, and that's when he won, but there were other battles and he was killed. And then his sons
0: were killed as well. Okay, so he wasn't caliph, caliph very long. Then. No, no,
1: no, there were none. Uh, as I recall, Umar was the longest.
0: I may be wrong on this length of term that Ali served. Okay. And you mentioned the party, the Shia was the party of Ali. In other words, the sect in Islam uh, that Ali had, I, I guess some of the understandings that he had talked about the the scriptures, the the followers, the Shia people were followers of his ideas. is that Yes it, or, and and usually the dichotomy is between Shia and Sunni, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So, yes. if Shia was the party of Ali, what was Sunni?
1: Well, the Sunni were those. The distinction here, there was two distinctions made. The uh, the Shia believed that only the descendant, see the, Ali was the only one who served as a caliph, who was a direct descendant of Muhammad. what oh, okay. the uh, what the Shia say is only those who are descendant of Muhammad can be uh, can be. Uh, Caliph. The Sunnis say, no, 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 no. Any man who is a good Muslim who follows the Sunnah of Muhammad, that is, you may have a man who's not the bloodline of Muhammad, but he is a perfect imitation of Muhammad, so therefore he can be caliph
0: as well. Okay, so Ali was the chief person identified with the origin of the Shia sect. Yes. Was there a, a corresponding person identified with the original Sunni sect?
1: No. Okay. Because the first three, Uthman, Umar, and uh, Abu Bakr, could all be called Sunni. They were not related to Muhammad, other than by marriage. Abu Bakr was uh, father-in-law. But the actual bloodline went through uh, Ali.
0: Okay, so Ali believed that the three caliphs before him were all imposters then, right? He never said that. He just said they
1: didn't get a fair shake in the election. It was those who came after him and became his adherents who
0: maintained that. Okay, okay, okay. And if the Sunnis said that any good man who was being um, a correct Muslim could become caliph, did they say how a caliph was chosen? Well, they have to be elected. But there's another
1: way of becoming caliph, which is military force. Remember... Muhammad did everything he did by force. Right. So this also became a way of getting rid of, an election can be held with a sword as well.
0: Okay, so it just depends what's appropriate for the time.
1: It depends on what you've
0: got. And if it's done by voting, who gets to vote?
1: That's another tricky question, isn't it? This is not clearly laid out. Okay, okay. So the whole business of how to get a caliph was uh, as troubled Islam for a long time. Well, they had troubles it today. They say, oh, no one elected Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, so he's not a caliph. We didn't get to vote on him. So when you hear these arguments, they've been around for a long time.
0: And and you referred, I think, and other people refer to the four, uh, what is it, rightly... Rightly
1: guided caliphs.
0: Rightly guided. Who called them that, and what does it mean?
1: Well, they were direct companions of Muhammad.
0: Okay. And so
1: therefore, it's, it's presumed that they knew exactly what Muhammad wanted. And so therefore, they were rightly guided. Because what's going to happen is there's politics in the background of all of this. And the Umayyad, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, caliphs were no longer uh, companions of Muhammad. They set up their own bloodline and they maintained it by the sword.
0: Okay. So there were caliphs after Ali then?
1: Oh, yes, 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 yes. As a matter of fact, there were caliphs all the way up until 19 and 20, mid-20s, because the sultans were caliphs as well of Turkey. And the last sultan was uh, in the mid-20s. And so this is one of the attractions of Islamic State, is that after the sultan died, there were no more caliphs. And there are those, there are many Muslims who say, We need to go back to the days of Muhammad. We need a caliph to rule all of Islamic lands. And so that is the theological attraction of Islamic State, is that they're reestablishing the real, that is, you cannot really have Islam without the Sharia and a caliph. Okay, okay. And so Islamic State is for the full imposition of the Sharia, down to the smallest detail, and that there's a caliph. And this, by the way, has a very powerful attraction I'm a 75-year-old man, but I can remember, believe it or not, what it was like to be young. Mm-hmm. And when you're young, you're very idealistic. Life is simple. There are clear, hard choices. And who does the Islamic State mostly attract? Young people. Who <clears throat> They look at Muhammad and the glory of the rightly guided caliphs and say, yes, this is the way that Islam must be.
0: Well, people like to worship royalty, right? You know, I've never understood that.
1: I think I've known some people who are supposedly royal a little too well. <laughs> and,
0: yeah, but they always imagine that royalty is different than that.
1: Yes, they do. <clears throat> and I've never understood that because, anyway, well, we finished the first f- four Riley guided caliphs. Yes. By the way, I, I, I know that we could just li- do this. I could have prepared a list of battles that were fought and just cycle through them. But I think it's much more interesting to go through and fill in the details behind what's going on.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I want it to be unscripted and just whatever you feel. Well,
1: it's unscripted, I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty convinced of that, and certainly on my side, too. So whatever you feel like talking about next would be great. Well,
1: I'll tell you what. Uh, let's, why don't we take and jump from the first four Riley guided caliphs? Mm-hmm. Because the next thing that happens is is that there, there, there is a fight that happens, and we finally wind up with a new Abbasid caliph. Uh, what do you call it, dynasty that overthrows overthrows the Umayyads but uh, uh, what I would like to do is to dwell on the saturation effect of what I call the law of saturation and then to examine a place where that didn't work and why it didn't work and that is in Spain.
0: Okay, so if you want to go kind of make it follow from what we finished talking about let's think of some kind of a segue to use for that
1: well, I think the segue is, is I just gave it. Why don't we just, I would like to uh, go ahead to an example, because the, the business of, of the next series of battles, I don't really have in my mind, nor okay. I do, I have I ever tried to do that. Uh, my specialty is the doctrine of Islam, not its history, but okay. I do know a lot about the history.
0: But in general, there were more battles after the first four caliphs, and it was a oh, continuing effort was ongoing. Of expansion. Right.
1: It was ongoing. Uh, for instance, the expansion went into uh, Persia.
0: Uh-huh. It went
1: into uh, what we now call Afghanistan. Okay. Afghanistan, by the way, used to be Buddhist. I always say this because most people have no idea that that was the case.
0: I never heard of that. That's interesting.
1: Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that briefly.
0: Yeah. The... the uh,
1: Afghanistan used to be both Hindu and Buddhist. And by Mm -hmm. the way, there was a period of time in both religions where there was not a lot of distinction made between the two.
0: Okay, okay.
1: But anyway, Alexander the Great wound up, a a large part of his people, his soldiers wound up settling down in what became Afghanistan, what we now call Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. This was Gandharva, which was at the head of the Silk Route. And what happened was that Two things happened in this part of the world. Number one was these Macedonian soldiers created what we now call Buddhist art. That is, the whole concept of Buddhist art was created by them as an extrapolation of Greek art. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So they created the first images of Buddha with flowing robes, and they're actually, you can see the influence of the Greeks on Buddhist art. But now, then, a strange thing happens. The most fierce warriors in the world after four centuries of Buddhism become absolute pacifist. They have four centuries. There was no war in that part of the world. They controlled the head of the Silk Route. And so they became quite wealthy and very sophisticated, and they became pacifist.
0: Did they, did they convert to Buddhism because of running into some uh, influential Buddhists, or how did that happen?
1: Yeah, I'm not real sure of how it all happened, but I do know that Buddhism was the first evangelical religion by the way.
0: Huh, okay.
1: And so, after Buddha died, Buddhist monks went out across the land basically preaching Buddhism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they became converted, became sophisticated artists, wealthy people, and then when Islam came along, they collapsed in a heartbeat.
0: Huh? okay.
1: It is ever thus. Uh, Passivism is always very popular as a personal opinion, but history teaches that passivist nations that are pacifist are always destroyed by those who are not. Now then, so, uh, there was a point I was going to make there about... Uh,
0: okay, you've hmm. got Alexander the Great's soldiers becoming Buddhists in Afghanistan. I
1: right, very
0: pacifist. What, oh. About what time frame was that, by the way?
1: Ooh, let's see, Muhammad died 632. We're going to be within a century. We're going to be within the year 700. They're going to be there. Okay. Those, those are rough figures. Okay. The, the, Islam expanded very fast. Um, And they got very good at what they did. So it was just rolling over another one. But uh, so what happened was, is that Afghanistan quickly became completely Islamic. Okay. So the expansion went there it went into what is now called Pakistan, Hindustan if you want to call it that, used to be very much larger than it is now. The point I'm making here is the expansion of Islam went in very rapidly. It did not go so rapid into Turkey, however, because the Byzantine Empire resisted them for a long time until the year 1458 I believe which it fell. Now then the point I want to make here is is Afghanistan became completely Islamic very quickly. Turkey, which was called Anatolia, or Asia Minor in the New Testament, became Muslim, but over a much slower period of time, it took centuries for it to become completely Muslim. It turns out that both Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism collapsed very quickly in the face of Islam, not so Christianity. So, but today, Christianity totally is, I would say, just about eliminated from Turkey. It did not happen this way in Spain. Now, Spain was invaded in the year 711. This is 80 years after Muhammad's death, roughly. This is very rapid, that they went from all the way through the Middle East, North Africa, and then into Spain. Now, we're told that the Spanish conquest led to the Golden Age of Spain. It's called Andalusia, which was a multicultural paradise in which was the most sophisticated part of Europe, and that if only this, this... Islam had not been driven out of Europe, Europe would be a much finer place today because it would become Islamic. Right. I've actually seen scholars argue that that the great tragedy of European civilization was is that the Spaniards threw the Muslims out. Mm-hmm. Now there's some questions to be asked about this rule in Spain because the Christians were demis they were persecuted. One of the first things that happened when they involved in the invasion of Spain was, is that part of the process of jihad includes sex slaves. Mm -hmm, Taking slaves and having sex slaves. The Moors who invaded, and by the way, there's a uh, thing we need to talk about here. When you read the conquest of these nations, it was not Islam that expanded, it was the Arabs that expanded. It was not the Muslims who invaded Europe, it was the Turks. It was the Saracens. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was the Arabs. I remember, It was yeah. the Moors. The point I'm making here is, is that part of what the Kafirs, the non-believers, have done is they've tried to ignore the fact that it is Islam that is the enemy. Instead, they want to believe that it's like other forms of warfare in which there are ethnic groups that get together to war, such as Romans and others, to, or the English, to conquer and, be, and have conquest. But Islam does not see it that way. A Moor is a Muslim, an Arab is a Muslim, so therefore it is an Islamic conquest. It's the historians of the West and the East who try to mollify and make it milder and sort of don't want to directly face the fact that Islam is the enemy.
0: This is way before the invention of political correctness, so why are they doing that?
1: I think it was because the... Fear was so great that Islam was an enemy which, unlike any they had ever seen before, and its conquest involved taking of slaves, humiliation, and that they simply—I think—it was a form of denial. But that is a personal theory. But it's—it's an interesting question. I just noticed in reading history that they never described a Muslim invasion. It's Turk, Moor, and the Moors were the ones who invaded Spain. That's the reason I brought that up. Now the Moors, when they saw the Spanish women. Who were Visigoths and and others? This, by the way, Spain. At the inv- usually the way the story goes, the invasion of Spain was is that uh, the Spaniards were stupid people who were primitives, who were barbarians, and that therefore the invasion of Islam was a blessing to these crude, ignorant people. Mm, right. That is completely false. The Visigoths had invaded Spain and managed to defeat the Romans, but the Visigoths were not remotely interested in taking over the civilization. They wanted to take on the civilization, and that the Spanish part of the Roman Empire furnished poets and emperors. These were a sophisticated people. These were not living in mud huts, which is the way where the story is told is that they were a highly sophisticated people who were simply the westernmost part of the Roman Empire, which had been conquered by the Visigoths, but there was a process where the Visigoths were becoming increasingly Roman. This process was interrupted. But anyway, one of the remarks of the uh, Moors who invaded was the beauty of the women, in particular blonde women. The fascination with Muslims for blonde women is an old one and is even included in the sirah itself. So they immediately started taking sex slaves. And as a matter of fact, in Baghdad, there was a standing purchase order. I think they wanted a thousand blonde Christians, virgins a year shipped in, if at all possible. So this is part of the process of slavery in the Spain. And by the way, I happen to have made a note here. And uh, here's the price of uh, some of the uh, a black girl would bring 200 dirham, a white girl 1,000 dirham, and if she could sing, it, the price for a, a sex slave who could sing could be as high as 14,000 dirham. I have not the slightest idea what a dirham is worth today. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is, is that this sex slave business, the white woman was always the highest priced sex slave. The, sex, the markets in uh, Arabia were closed down in 1960. Most people don't know that. Records were kept over the price of slaves, and the highest-priced slave was always a white woman. And if she had blonde hair, she bought an extremely high price. Okay. So, one of the things that happened when the Moors invaded Spain was, is they had better-looking sex slaves than they'd ever imagined before. All right. It's a little note in history. Wow. So, uh, in 711, the jihad invasion happened, and... Uh, it's, like I say, one of the theories is it, the, the invasion and all the murder and building towers out of skulls of the of the Kafirs, This was a blessing. This is the way the history is taught. And so, but something happened in Spain, which was Catholicism was very strong. And in the northern part of Spain, it was very mountainous. And so, there, they never fully conquered Spain. Now, I have a question for you, Richard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Golden Age of Spain was Andalusia was such a marvelous wonderful thing. I have a question for you. Why did the Spaniards fight against Islam for 700 years?
0: Well, obviously because they were sent su- such low consciousness they didn't realize it was good for them.
1: You right, right. They didn't want to take their medicine. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Spain is unusual in that all the other nations that Islam conquered, except some in the Balkans, who were once again the Christians, were able to push back, uh, have a conquered. I mean, do you think that Afghanistan is going to have a revival of Buddhism? I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I mean, nobody's even heard that it was ever there at this point. Right.
1: So, and it's also the Spaniards, were the Catholics were criticized greatly for driving out every Jew and every, and every Muslim as if this were some great ill. We have to understand that moving of native tribes was a, used to be a standard form of warfare. It was last practiced by Stalin with the uh, well, the, the caucus uh, oh, there's a anyway I can't remember the tribe he did so and the Muslims themselves <clears throat> frequently to punish Christians would export them to northern Spain. Hmm, okay. <clears throat> let me clear my throat here.
0: So the Catholics were in the northern mountains mostly and they, or the origin of the rebellion against the invasion. Is that accurate?
1: That's part of the story. Another part of the story is is that the Visigoths were Aryan Christians. They were not Catholic Christians. Uh So there was a division. But now the Aryan Christians did not insist on converting the Catholics. Now the Muslims, when they came in, did. Those Christians who were conquered and within the conquered area were demis. Uh They lived in their own area. Now the Jews were used, an invading tribe... Or an invading army always finds it convenient if there's some locals there who can work for them when cortez invaded mexico he found there were english they found there were not english there were indian tribes mm-hmm. who hated the aztecs and they were more than willing to go to war against them right there was bad blood between the Aryan christians the visigoths and the jews now there was a very large population of jews in spain so what happened is, as the Muslims conquered cities, they put the Jews in charge of running the city for them. This creates bad blood. Mm, now the, okay. the Jews were both treated well, and there were there were times in which as many as five thousand were killed in a blow. So this is also portrayed in history that is being ta- has been taught for a long time and is now being found not to be true. And is that. It was a wonderful golden age for Jews. It was a wonderful golden age for everybody except the Christians who just didn't realize how well they had it. I want to stop here and plug a book called The Myth of the Andalusian Paradise written by a man's name, I cannot pronounce, Dario Fernandez Morea. It is a brilliant book that deals with the lie that we've been taught about the wonderful thing it was to be a Demi under Islam. But, so it was such a wonderful golden age, and yet the Muslims were fought against for 700 years until finally they were driven out. And when the Christ- Christian Catholics finally took over, they said to the Muslims, leave, get out of here. We don't want anyone left who was like you. Now, this, this is called extreme racism, but the Catholics viewed it like this. Look, we've been tr- these people came into our house. They conquered us or tried to for 700 years. We don't want them around because we don't trust them. We don't want to be anywhere around these people. And yet right. the modern uh, multiculturalists say, oh, see, they were just bigots and haters.
0: And yet, you know, they would have to admit that, as if I understand it correctly, Islam is not a race. So no. you can't be racist by disagreeing with something that they're saying.
1: Well, I'm called a racist because I disagree with Islam. It's the oddest thing to call me. And the reason they call me a racist is not because I'm a racist, because Islam has nothing. T- oh, Chechnya was the tribe I was trying to remember earlier. Oh, okay. Chechens, Chech- I don't know if you've ever seen any Chechen people but they're from the ca- Caucasus region. I don't they think so. make me look like mixed blood. I mean, and I have blonde hair. Uh-huh. The Chechens are as blonde and blue-eyed as you get. A beautiful people, I might add. Mm, and okay. yet, they're Muslim. Okay. And yet they're whiter than me. But I'm called a racist because I... And the reason they call me a racist is simple. It's the foulest word they can use in public.
0: Yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it actually, just, they've been willing to go further in a lot of cases lately, but that's okay. But anyway, so so
1: here we have this, this golden age of Spain, which turns out to have been enforced upon them. And uh, we... The Moors found a vast treasure of architecture. They could not believe the wealth that was in Spain. They could, it took horses to carry away the gold. So, yeah. this process of Islam, the Muslims invading and through the process of jihad, impoverishing Spain, was considered to be a blessing by the modern writers in Europe. And why they do it, I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. And by okay. the way, the women were not treated well. They were treated as demis. They were could be sex slaves. Uh, the demi could be humiliated, wear special clothes. Mm-hmm. And there was there was one uh, ruler of Spain who was the, basically the king of Spain, except I think, he, I don't know if he was called a caliph or not. He may have claimed to be. Uh, and by the way, in the process of caliphs, you'll have different caliphs around at the same time. Uh, the process gets to be just purely territorial warfare.
0: Right. So, was there one class of slaves that were sex slaves and the other ones were regular slaves or were they all just whatever was needed? Well, you've asked a very interesting question.
1: It turns out that in the Arabic language, there's about 40 words to use for slave. In America, which we're very ashamed of our slavery history, by the way, the Muslims are not ashamed of their history of slavery because... A slave converts to Islam, and so therefore, it's a good thing and a blessing. Mm-hmm. So Muslims do not have any guilty feeling about slavery in their past. It's just that that was in the past. But there's none. There's none of this hand-wringing anguish that Muslims have about their history. Okay. But slaves were priced on their on their race. A white slave bought more than a black slave, and uh, women slaves, if they were, could. Entertainers and could be sex slaves brought the highest price of all. Black slaves were usually used for hard work. Oh, the point I wanted to make was Islam has some 40 words for slaves. Abid means an African slave, Mamluk means a white slave. So it's interesting, the slave business was so sophisticated in Islam that they had three different words for an escaped slave an escaped woman slave, an escaped male slave, and an escaped child slave. Hmm. Now, what does this tell you when we discover that a culture has a sophisticated vocabulary about a topic? It means they're very
0: good at it. Right, right, right. And so
1: the very it. fact that the Arabic language contains 40 words for slave means the slave business was a big business in Islam, and it happened in Spain.
0: Yeah, and where did you say it was shut down in the 1960s? Mecca. Mecca. In Mecca, okay, but it's still going on in some places, right? It's still going on in Africa. Okay.
1: And I think that one of the great tragedies of our civilization today is is that we do not hold Muslims and Islam accountable for this piece of business.
0: Right, still in Africa. Okay, do you happen to remember what countries in Africa?
1: Uh, I have met a slave from the Sudan... Okay. I went to Vanderbilt to hear a talk g- given by, can I remember the man's name? He was a slave from Africa, and his slave story was the same story of all of them. He and his sister went to the market to sell beans, and the jihadists came, killed his parents, and took him and his do- his sister off. His w- sister was raped every night many times, and he was finally taken into uh, the northern Sudan where he was turned over for money, of course, to an Arabic family. And they put him in the center of a circle, took off his clothes, and all took a small stick and began to beat him and called him Abed, Abid, Abed. You no longer have a name. You are now Abed. So what I found interesting was this man gave a talk uh, at Vanderbilt University. Now, I went to hear the talk because I wanted to meet a slave who had survived the jihad of Africa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Here's what I found fascinating there were no american blacks in the room with him he was a slave that had come off the slave block in africa and yet black americans had no interest in meeting such a person because there's a history of we need to dwell here since we've since i worked the subject around to this all the slaves that came to america were sold to us by muslim slaveholders wholesalers
0: you're saying that that during the american slave period the sellers of those slaves were all Muslims, Muslim business yes. people.
1: Now, the story, I went to, I taught for eight years at TSU, Tennessee State University. And there, it's a historically black university. And so the story of slavery that's told there, and here's the reason that, that black Americans didn't come hear this man who was uh, talking. I keep trying to remember his name. Francis Bach, that was his name. Okay. He became a Christian. His Francis Bach was his name. Um, this way the story is told, it was from the west coast of Africa. That's all the slave trade was. And that the whites went into the interior of Africa, drug out the slaves, and then brought them to America. Well, sailors don't do that kind of work. They're like truck drivers. They sail boats. That's what they do. Right. What happened was is that the slave ship sailed up to the harbor and there was a business transaction with invoices and bills of sale and cash. So the jihadist slave dealer was a Muslim. This has gone on in Africa for centuries. Okay. It was in North Africa, it was in Eastern Africa, and it was in Western Africa. So all, every slave that came to America passed through the hands of a jihadist Muslim. Now my question to you is, why wouldn't a historically black college want to teach this knowledge? I find that all of the history of jihad, that all the history of Islam that deals with violence, no one wants to know about, no one wants to hear about, no one wants to know the story, no one wants to tell the story. I went to my brother's funeral in San Francisco, and there I met a man who was from Bulgaria. And when he, he knew from my brother's words about me that I knew a lot about Islam. And so he started talking to me about how their women were raped, how their children were crucified, and also about the janissaries in which A tax was put upon Christians in which they had to give an oldest son who became a slave soldier for the sultan. These stories are not told nor widely known. There is something about the conquest of Islam that produces a shame in the conquered people that they do not want to talk about. And I think it all has to do from the shame of being a Demi and the complete humiliation while the Muslims were there. That's a personal theory. But it is a fact. That the history of Islam and the history of jihadic conquest is simply not told.
0: And and you think this is because the people who would have to tell it would be too ashamed to admit that they were in the status of Dimi or the people that they identify with at the time would have been Dimi so they can't talk about it?
1: I'm not sure what all it's a fascinating thing to me. Let's let's take this. The whites can be shamed about their history of slavery, okay? Mm-hmm. How many times have white Christians apologized for slavery, even those who were say from Ireland, when the whole business happened, they'll apologize too. But the Muslims, when have you ever heard a Muslim say we were wrong in taking slaves? They cannot be said to be wrong because Muhammad was a slaveholder, Muhammad was a slave dealer, he retailed them, he wholesaled them, he used them for sex. So therefore, the process of taking slaves, a Muslim has no guilt about at all. Now he's slightly embarrassed about it today because it's not supposed to be done under modern context. Yeah. But in his heart of hearts, taking slaves was something Muhammad did, and so therefore there is no shame or dishonor in having done so. Whereas the whites who are Christians, or are not Christian, cannot justify slave-taking because it violates the golden rule. So I right. think this is part of the process.
0: Well, the other, you know, when you get to the idea of apology, um, there's been an, a notable absence of, as far as I know anyway, I might have missed some of it, but... I haven't noticed high-level Muslim leaders apologizing for acts of terrorism, and I think it's the same issue because acts of terrorism are ways to get into paradise, and they're virtuous. Well, the, act,
1: the, the best Muslim is the jihadist. That's right. what Islamic doctrine says. Right. So therefore, this, you, you've touched upon something here. Why should Muslims apologize for something Muhammad did? And for the Quran, look, the Quran is very clear that slaves are okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And women
1: slaves can be sex slaves.
0: So why has slavery stopped in many uh, Muslim countries? Because of the influence of the West. Okay, okay. Okay, it's not politically acceptable at the moment. It's not and
1: politically acceptable. Right. And the, long, and the if places, places, go ahead. Now, here's an interesting thing. Islam once there is a possible there is a distinct possibility and you could write a novel about this that Islam will carry forth its conquest to be the complete entire world. But that would end slavery because you see you can't capture a Muslim for a slave. The purpose of slavery is twofold, to get the work done and to convert, because the only way the slave can be set free is if they become a Muslim.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. That's psychologically really useful. So and there's still plenty of them that don't convert that you can use for slaves.
1: It's being done in Africa
0: today. Which and okay, whatever country that is. is one of them.
1: The Sudan is another. Okay. I know of a man who's gone to Sudan to purchase slaves and free them.
0: Oh wow. His
1: name is Charles Jacobs, out of Boston. huh oh. The best thing about what I do, Richard, is the people I get to meet.
0: I guess yeah. I mean I really I've never heard of of people freeing slaves, uh, I mean, he could set up a whole non-profit foundation to do that. I bet he'd get a lot of uh, support.
1: I think he has done that. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. By the way, the slave that you heard, um, Mr. Bach, I forget his first name. Francis Bach. Francis, yeah. How did he get away? How did he escape?
1: Well, he escaped. He, He escaped and headed north to Egypt. He slept in the barn, and evidently he kept his wits about him, and I don't know, I, the pro, I don't know the process that well, but he managed to go to Egypt and, and, and was, and finally wound up, he lives in America now, and he works with a group called I Abolish, that is, it's all about abolishment of slavery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But no, slaves are being taken now in Mauritania and the Sudan, and, and what do you think happened to those 200 girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram? Well, we know what happened, because some of them ex- have escaped. They were, made to sec- they were made into sex slaves. Mohammed yeah, and sex I, ne- slaves. I never
0: once heard Boko Haram called an Islamic organization. Well oh, it's completely Islamic. Okay. I just heard it called Boko Haram terrorists, and that was it.
1: Well, it's, it's pure. Boko Haram means uh, Western knowledge is forbidden.
0: Oh. Okay. They, have
1: sworn, they have sworn allegiance to ISIS, Islamic State.
0: Wow, interesting. Okay, and, and uh, Francis' sister was lost, I guess, right?
1: You know, that's the first time I've thought of her. Yes, she was lost. He made no mention of her at all. Okay. But I was struck by the fact that she was raped every night because this is the way of us. The Quran itself says that you can have sex with those who you own by your right hand, the sword arm.
0: As long as they're not on their period. Actually, with a sex slave,
1: let me think about this. Yes, 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 you're quite right, because in Kaibar, pregnant ones, you're not supposed to have sex with pregnant ones or ones having their period. You're quite correct, sir. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. (sighs) This is like exposure to a totally new world, and it makes me wonder one thing. You know, I've met a lot of Muslims in America that, that are friends of mine, and The ones that I've met, most of them don't show the outward signs of, you know, the women aren't wearing burqas or anything, Mm -hmm. they just seem pretty free, and I'm wondering how many of them really understand the tenets of their religion from Muhammad.
1: I've never met, the only ones that I've ever met who knew the tenets were Muslim Brotherhood types. Okay. One of the verses which is the most discouraging to me in the Quran is, is the Quran says, do not ask difficult questions
0: yeah yeah
1: well as a scientist i go well what are the kind of questions should you be asking if you're not asking the difficult ones
0: you ask scripted ones of course
1: right (laughs) but anyway muslims are not encouraged to study theology muslims are encouraged to it's a practice it is a um there's a word for this not orthodoxy orthopraxis Mm. that is uh you you do your prayers you do the fasting you do the five pillars and that's really the end of it the whole structure of Islamic doctrine is made such that it is almost, it's very difficult to understand. The Quran is difficult to understand. The Sirah is difficult to understand. The Hadith is almost impossible to understand because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence, Muslims do not go deep study about the Sirah, the life of Muhammad. Now they have little short stories they like to tell, which are very pleasant ones, but the, the most of the time, if I deal with Muslims, I say, oh that's not true, even if I know it is true because I've read the Sirah. Actually, one of the things I now do if I'm going to debate with a Muslim is I clearly establish what do they know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what I know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know a lot of Muslims have no bad intent by following their religion because they don't, they're not aware of some of the parts of it.
1: That's, that's my observation, is they simply do not know, nor are they encouraged by their religion. They're encouraged to go to the mosque, do the prayers, they practice the five pillars, and that's what their, their primary life is. So it's, it's not encouraged. It's, Christianity is and Judaism and Hinduism, for that matter, but actually more Judaism and Christianity are different in their encouragement of studying the sacred text. Mm-hmm. In great detail. This was, of course, the creation of the Protestant religion out of the Catholicism. Catholicism was practiced before Protestantism, and somewhat the same way Islam is. You listen to the priest, you just do your work, you pray, you do the outward things, but you don't do a study of the text itself.
0: Right, and didn't they, they made an effort at, at one point to make the text unreadable and un, unintelligible to almost anybody, and people were going to services in languages that they didn't understand. Yes. In Catholicism. That's correct. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Well, boy, I, I mean, we, we've skipped around a little bit. and Oh, well, we have. We we have some time to fill in gaps if we want to. Well, I mean, you
1: ask questions about the gaps, and we'll
0: fill them in. Okay. Well, um I want to know, first of all, and there's several different things I'd I'd like to ask, but one of them is, uh, we kind of left off the invasion of Spain, talking about the Romans and then the the Visigoths kind of replaced the Romans for the most part, if I understood you. And then after that, uh, you had the Muslim invasion by the Moors and other people. And what was the progression of that invasion up to the point where the people, I guess, led by the Catholics in the northern mountains uh, reversed the invasion and and were able to drive them out.
1: This was a long, slow process. It was helped by the fact that the Muslim invaders became corrupt and more incompetent. uh, And the, the Christian Catholics just simply would not give up They kept on fighting and fighting Mm -hmm. and began to reconquer piece by piece until finally, in the year 1492, the last Muslim and last Jew had to leave Spain. I want to make a remark about the Jews in Spain. Probably the most famous Jewish scholar of the medieval times is Maimonides. And he wrote in the letter to the Yemeni Jews some advice to Jews in dealing with Muslims. He said, you can teach the Torah a Christian, but you cannot teach the Torah to a Muslim, and that no group of people had ever prosecuted the Jews so badly as the Saracen, I bring you the, which is another word for saying Muslim, that mm-hmm. no, no, no nation had ever been so cruel. I say this because it is a popular thing for secularists to say, is that the Jews were treated extremely well in Spain. Well, if this were the case, how come their chief scholar, Maimonides, is saying to the Jews, do not try to teach them the Torah, and they have treated us worse than anyone. All I'm saying here is is that it is a very mixed bag. It's not as clean as cut as you would like. Another thing that's true about the treatment of both Catholics and Jews in Spain is this. And by the way, there were wars and fights amongst the Muslims themselves. The Moors were North Africans. They, mm-hmm. The Arabs also invaded as well, and there was always bad blood between the Arabs and the Moors, and this goes back into Islam. The Arab Muslim views himself as superior to all other Muslims. Now, theoretically, he's not, but he has a certain arrogance because he's, in a sense, of the tribe of Muhammad, mm-hmm. whereas you as a Moor, a North African, uh, you're, not, you're, you're, you're a Bedouin, you're not really as good as us.
0: Yeah, just fortunate that Islam actually got there so that they could learn the truth, I guess, right?
1: Right, exactly. So what happens is, is that there was a lot of disgruntlement and, and small wars between the Muslim Moors and the Muslim Arabs. Now what happens is, is that there and there is a stage of Spanish history in which there is no central ruler. There are many, many small pretense uh, dukedoms, if you will. And so this helped in the Catholics trying to reconquer their territory is they did not have to fight all of the Muslims at once, okay? Mm -hmm. They could bite them off a piece at a time. Mm -hmm. This was beneficial. You have to understand that once you hang, there is, Islam has a propensity for violence that is supposed to be only directed towards the apostate and the kafir. However, once it becomes a reasonable ethical principle to kill somebody else because of a disagreement about ideology, this can also be done against fellow Muslims. A rough rule of thumb since, uh, is that Muslims kill at least two of themselves for every kafir they kill. The most dangerous person for a Muslim is another Muslim, not a kafir. I mean, look at the Iran-Iraq war. A million died, and there was Muslim killing Muslim. So the same thing happened in Spain. Muslims would kill Muslims and have small wars, and this made it possible for the Catholics who simply would not give up. And so they managed to... This took 700 years,
0: though. 700 years. Okay, okay. And so... Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's technically illegal for one Muslim to kill another, so you always would have to justify it, I assume, By saying the one you're killing is really not a a real Muslim anyway.
1: This is, I knew a man one time, it was one of the first talks I gave. And I said a Muslim is to never, there's a series of ethical principles laid forth in the Hadith. A Muslim is not to cheat another Muslim in business. A Muslim is not to touch another Muslim's wife. A Muslim is not to lie to another Muslim. And uh, there's other rules like that, but they all have to do with treating another Muslim well. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well. (laughs) Once it's possible to hurt somebody because they're a kafir, what you do is, is that you simply declare the other Muslim, oh, he drinks beer, or he doesn't fast during Ramadan, or he doesn't do his prayers, and so therefore he's not a real Muslim, therefore we can cheat him in business. Mm -hmm. I gave a talk one time at a church, and a man in the back of the room says, you have spoken the truth, sir. He says, I work in the used car business and used car parts. And he says it's dominated now mostly by Muslims. But he said working in the back room, I can tell you this, before they cheat another Muslim, they also establish, they always establish how he's not a good Muslim before they cheat him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: The, I uh, mean, which is a uh, sort of smile at the story because it's so human.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so you're talking about how the Catholics that didn't give up in Spain were able to prevail over the Muslims, and it makes me wonder... Um, how this all fits into the overview of the Crusades.
1: Ah, well, let's establish something about the Crusades. The, Christians are I've met Christians who were ashamed of the Crusades, and what they should have been ashamed about is the fact that they know so little about the Crusades, they would be ashamed. Remember, we started this whole thing off with the conquest of the Middle East, and this was an unpleasant process for the Catholics. Mm-hmm. Or not the Catholics, for the Christians. Okay. Well this treatment of them got worse and worse because at first the the treatment of Christians becomes worse as Islam stays longer and longer. At first they needed them to run the business for them and relations were quite good. But as time goes on, the Muslims become stronger, the Christians become weaker and there's fewer of them. And so, the Christians were persecuted to the degree that the Bishop of Jerusalem put a cry out to the byzantine emperor and the byzantine emperor in turn made a plea to the pope to please come and rescue us from the muslims well this was roughly in the year i think 1099 or 1100 thereabouts and so that was the first crusade this was a defensive battle all of the battles were defensive why do i say that remember Islam invaded the Middle East. Some of this overwhelmingly simple fact is forgotten by most people who want to talk about the crusades. It isn't that the Middle East converted to Islam through a process of Muslim preachers. It was converted to Islam through the process of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali. This was a conquest by the sword. Now, by and large by the way, we need to establish this the process of the sword, it's not convert or die. What it is, the process of the sword, Jihad, puts the Sharia in place. And the Sharia is that the the Christians can be humiliated, or the Jews as well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so all of the Crusades were defensive in nature. Now, some of them were stupid and did things they should have never done, but they were always defensive in nature. I've seen seen, uh, liberal historians say, well, they had no reason to go over there. The Christians were being treated well. And these were just particular French knights who were just hell-raising outlaws, and they were just looking for some people to hurt and to get rich. Well, no one got rich off the Crusades. It was a money-losing business. And there, were, there was territory that was conquered, but it was unable to be held. As a matter of fact, there's some evidence that the Crusades helped to uh, centralize power in the Muslim world because with a foe, they could all unite against it. But the Crusades were defensive, and if badly done, for instance, the, worst th- the two worst things the Crusades did was, one, attack the Byzantine city of Constantinople, which then helped to weaken it to the point where it could be conquered in 1453. I hope I have that date right. Hmm. And um, so the, the Crusades should be seen in the right light, which is they were a response to jihad. And yet, once again, we see this business of somehow or another, Islam is always right in whatever it does. If it conquers a country, well, that's okay. If it takes slaves, that's okay. No matter what it is, it is okay. And I think the reason for this is, is the fact that we've covered earlier, that theologically, Muslims have no reason to be ashamed of slavery or conquest because that is the way of Muhammad.
0: So when you say that the Crusades were all defensive, were they... Is it fair to characterize them by by saying that they were always aimed at um, removing some country from Muslim domination?
1: Yes. That is, they were to drive the people who were persecuting the Christians out. One of the things that got to be so bad is is that um, pilgrimages used to be very big to go from Europe to be a pilgrim to go to Jerusalem. That was a very common thing. And in particular, after the Muslims took over, that could be a dicey piece of business. It might work well, and it might not. Okay,
0: okay, okay. So, and, and what, what areas that you're familiar with, what countries were primary areas where the Crusades were taking place?
1: Well, they were in Syria. Uh, let's see, and where, uh, where is, where was, what country was Jerusalem in in those days? I don't even know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. but it
1: centered around. It was to free the city of Jerusalem in particular.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. okay so, um, hmm. so af- after the Crusades would would change the rulership in a city, then what would happen? You said in a lot of times it would weaken them and they wouldn't wouldn't stay independent like that. They would fall backwards. Well, the Crusade,
1: the, once the territories that they did conquer, which were small pieces of territory in Lebanon, Syria, and other places like that, yeah, they were always an outpost, and okay. they were never successful colonialists. And so they lost battles, and the Muslims became stronger. The Christians were, had a tenuous, the invading European Christians had a tenuous position, and over time they simply couldn't make out.
0: Was there a centralized control and, and coordination? Of no,
1: there was not. For the Crusades? Were, which was another problem with the invading force, is that you had different kings there. Well, kings used to be in Top Dog. Well, if he was with other kings, he can't be Top Dog. This was a bad thing. And there was also another bad thing in the sense that the Crusaders knew very little about where they were going and how to get there.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And they were also, the worst part about the Crusades aside from killing Jews in Germany on one crusade, and then the other was they would, Christianity has always been plagued by division. And this division played out in the sense that the Catholics that went into the Byzantine Empire, they were Orthodox Christian. Well, there was always bad blood between the Orthodox and the Catholics. That's, uh, I would say, the ultimate downside about Christianity is its fractious nature. Now, it's that's just a historical fact yeah so they christian the crusades although they were there to harm the muslims and to drive them out of in particular jerusalem the other thing it did was to weaken the byzantines who were what were all that was keeping islam away from um uh the land bridge to go directly into the balkans and the eastern part of europe
0: okay okay um I'm also really interested in what you alluded to in in the structure, the supply side structure for the slaves that were brought to America, mm-hmm. and I know there there was an another there was a slavery of of uh, English and other Northern European yes. people as indentured servants on ships, uh, not officially called slavery, but the but the one that you're talking about, which was kidnapping people in Africa and putting them on ships selling them to businessmen who were sailing the ships. Can you tell us any more about the structure of how that, that whole thing worked? Because that, that was a very developed business at, at one point, right?
1: Well, we, we know that, for instance, the difference – we know that some of the – a Muslim is not supposed to enslave another Muslim. Right. But if you're in the slave business and you run a little shy of kafir slaves and there's some Muslim slaves nearby and the pens are getting empty – you know what? They're not very good Muslims anyway, so they can be enslaved. Yeah. There's a whole business of fatwas given by black jurists in North Africa condemning Arab Muslims who would take Muslims for slaves and sell them. There, there, there was a whole there's a whole little business of that, complaining about it. Okay. But this, once again, is human behavior. One of the most interesting things about taking of slaves is, is that the collateral damage problem. Remember I told you the story about Francis Bach and his sister. Well, his mother and father were killed and so that two slaves could be taken. So there we have a collateral damage of two. Mm -hmm. But in general, it was estimated by those who went into the interior of Africa, amongst them uh, Livingston, Dr. Livingston, that there were from five to ten collateral deaths for every slave taken. Because here's the way it works. A jihadist Arab group uh, didn't, they could also be jihadist black group, but it tended to be Arab, Was would invade a town, a village, and then kill those until everyone would surrender. Immediately, the babies cannot be taken, the old people can't be taken, the sick can't be taken. And the, so what happens is is that for every slave taken, from five to ten Africans die. Okay. This, the, the estimates vary, like I say, from 5 to 10. And also many die on the forced march. Now Livingstone interrogated some of the Arab slave traders and asked them, why do you do this? And they said, it is because of our religion. They will either join our religion or we can sell them for money. Then they went ahead to describe how that some of the slaves would die from a broken heart. Because, and they, they were very puzzled by this. Even though if they had enough food and water, some of the slaves just simply laid down and died. Mm-hmm. So this was a report from Livingstone. Wow. Now, by the way, there were slaves taken. There were indentured servants who were white who were definitely brought to America and basically treated as slaves. But at least a million Europeans were taken into slavery in the Muslim world. Okay. And uh, this was an ongoing piece of business. There were also slaves taken from the east coast of Africa. Now, interestingly enough, the African slaves who were taken into uh, the Muslim world were almost always castrated. We have an interesting hadith in which a slave is supposedly accused of molesting a a woman, and Muhammad said, go and kill him. And uh, when he got there, the man was in a pool of water. He says, come out. You've molested a woman, and he said, came back to Muhammad and says, he has no sex. So this was a black slave, and the castration of a black slave included both the testicles and the penis. Yeah. The white slave, it just was the, the
0: testicles. I remember that story. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a level of uh, level of violence that a lot of people can't even imagine, actually. Which well, is, what
1: I find interesting is this. Is that Black Americans do not hold Muslims in any way blamed for this? Right. I, I find that the most I find that to be the most interesting thing, and I think again it boils down to you can shame a white person who has either who's either a Christian or who, who is a product of Christian heritage because slavery is a bad thing, but you can't slave a Muslim about
0: it. Well, I mean, and there's difference. a lot of Black people who are Muslims, right? So it's harder to tell the difference than it is just. You know, picking out somebody because they look different.
1: Well, and by the way, the way and in Islam invades, if it is a a uh, proselytizing thing, is and in particular, it has an attraction at the lowest class, and the and the prisons are a breeding ground for the conversion of Black Americans into Muslims, as well as some whites.
0: Because yeah, I, I, I'm how are you familiar with how that process works? Just since you brought it up, I, I mean, well, I most of what, what you've talked tell. about is not extremely attractive. So, how do they get a lot of converts?
1: Well, now let, let's let's talk about why it's attractive. Let's say that you want a religion, and and by the way, a friend of mine one time who was an atheist said we ought to eliminate all religions. I said, well, before we do that, I have an interesting thing to point out to you, Eric. We have never discovered. We have never discovered a tribe of people who did not have a religion. Mm -hmm. There's no such atheism as a modern product. Yeah. So, people want a religion. Christianity has become very wussified, in my opinion. Islam is very much a macho religion, and what uh, a Muslim to convert a. uh, And by the way, this process of how to convert is called dawah. And there are books written on how to do it. How do you convert a Muslim? How do you convert a Jew? How do you convert a black man? Okay. And what they tell the black man, "Is this Christianity is the religion of the white man? Islam is the religion of the black man." Right,
0: right. I've heard so that's, that. Too.
1: That's 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 what they say, and yet they never get around to telling <laughs> a black. So they tell that story too. That Muhammad, the supreme Muslim, had black slaves, white ones, and black ones.
0: Right. Right.
1: So they they never inform him of that. And by the way, there's another reason if you to become a Muslim, and that is this. It's very hard to find a husband in these days and times. Mm-hmm. Now, as an old man who's been married for fifty three years, I can't tell you this for a fact, but I've gathered from the internet and in such places that if you are young today, hooking up, as they call it, is almost is is almost done casually. Mm-hmm. But if you want a husband now then, that's different. You can get laid on Saturday night, but you're not going to get a man who's going to weigh in, hold a job, and support the kids. Yeah, yeah. If you want a husband, become a Muslim. You will have a husband as soon as you want it. Muslims prize fatherhood because Muhammad was a father. Muslims prize the family. The family is really the key element of the Muslim community, not the man. So therefore, you can get a macho religion. You can get a husband, and if you're a man and want a wife, you can get a wife who will be subjugated unto you. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to give you reasons as to, and then another reason is, is that we live in a world in which people are pretty very isolated. If you become a Muslim, you will become a member of a group that's very tight and has very clearly defined areas of boundaries. Right. So you become a member of something that has sh- very precise goals and yeah. has. Boundaries. So there's many reasons to become a Muslim.
0: Okay. Okay. I, I have seen an extremely supportive, mutually supportive nature within Muslim communities of, of thousands of people yes. within the this U.S. Yes, simply true. And they another really do all help each other.
1: There's another concept, which is the attraction of Islam. Today, even many Christian religions are what I call loosey-goosey or mm-hmm. whatever, well, there are people who don't prosper under that mindset. They want to know what the rules are, and they will obey the rules. Well, uh, welcome aboard to the good ship Islam, because Islam has very precise rules. Every question is answered in a clear, hard fashion. So it offers the answer. It gi- Islam gives the certainty of sure answers. Well, this is attractive to many people. So Islam has many things that make it attractive.
0: So so if, it, if it's oh, oh, attractive... Mean, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Just, go ahead. Go ahead. And
1: there's one other thing, too. I am a rugged individualist. There are many people who are not. They want a group to belong to. Yeah. And the Ummah is critical in Islam. That is, the congregation, if you will, is more important than the individual.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way as you do. That doesn't appeal to me at all, but I, I know that the vast majority of people, um, are very happy to go along with a completely supportive group because of the security sense that it brings with it. Mm-hmm. And, I, so and offer, I guess that's uh, true even for the women that might not have a very good status you know, compared to men within the group.
1: Well, like I say, those are all the things that make it attractive. Community, um, easy answers, sure answers. You can get a husband, you can get a wife. So there's there's a lot of reasons to become a Muslim,
0: yeah, yeah, and there and there are certain things that are you know criminal activities that are so completely banned that you don't have to worry about people doing them within the group.
1: hadn't thought about that, but I bet that's true.
0: Um, one thing that I'm wondering as you explain that is that if if part of the attraction is that the rules are so clear and they you can meet Muslims where you know the women are are wearing this degraded, uh, western clothes instead of burqas.
1: Well, I'll tell you, that is another thing which is which I find, uh, that, remember, I'm a 75-year-old man, I yeah. find sometimes the display of women to be a little over the top. That's a little too much palkertude. But in Islam, you don't have that. You have a concept called modesty, which right. I would say that modesty is not a concept that's big anymore inside of the culture that i live in
0: yeah yeah that's true i'm just wondering how how it's justified not to really follow the orthodox view if you're living in american society how is that okay
1: now when you say the orthodox view you're talking about orthodox christianity or orthodox islam
0: islam well
1: and you know I don't. There must be. Actually, I know that there are many Muslims who don't follow any of it. That is, they come into America and they just melt away, mm-hmm. because there's no sharply defined community boundaries. So there are others that I, I don't know the answer to your question, really.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because the the people that I, most of the friends that I have within the Muslim community are very Americanized. You mm-hmm. know, they still follow all of the. Um, the traditions that they know of, they certainly o- obey the holidays and they do the praying and um, they do Ramadan and all this stuff but but they act Americanized. And mm-hmm. I think you know in in the real teaching of Muhammad that I'm beginning to learn more about, I don't see a place for non-orthodox practice.
1: No, there is not. But on the other hand, we also have to understand this. someone I saw a list of Islamic sects, and there's like over a over hundred of them. You can always go the Ahmadiyya route, which is islam light. then it's not quite so onerous. Mm-hmm. But then again, if you're an Ahmadiyya, I wouldn't go to Pakistan and declare that you were, because they're, right. they're considered apostates there.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, oh, and, you know, I never got to ask you this other question, too. You said that archaeologically, even though we're only talking about what, 1,500 years ago that, uh, that Muhammad was operating in Mecca and Medina. You said Mecca might have actually been more accurately a place called Pal- Palmyra.
1: Yes. This is a fascinating story. We're now getting off. I usually talk about Islam as though I am a believer of Islam. That is, I accept that the veracity of the story of Muhammad. But in truth, I do not accept the story of Muhammad at all. Uh, it's f- too filled with small details to be actually accurate. But the other detail that is more important is is that there's a man who wrote a book, and I forget his name, Smith, I believe it was, mm-hmm. who spent his life in the Middle East, and he became fascinated by the fact that uh, and this partially came about because of uh, satellite views. You could go look from a satellite at a lot of old mosques that were in the first century or two of Islam, and the Qibla does not point to Mecca. The Qibla points instead to Palmyra. And the description of Palmyra, this man wrote a book called The Geography of the Quran, which is a brilliant book. Mm-hmm. He points out that the descriptions we have in this in the Quran of plant life and geographical features cannot have occurred in the Hejaz, which is where Mecca and Medina are, but they only are suited in the part of Syria called Palmyra and the Neo-Nabatean, Neo I pronounced that wrong, I know. The Nabataean Arabs lived there. So there is a great deal of indication that archaeologically that the story we have that Mecca... There's no way that Mecca was, as described, as a trading city, as a key trading city, because when you look at it, it just simply doesn't meet the point for being a key trading city. I mean, it's down there in the thumb of Arabia, and why would you stop and put goods off in Mecca so they could be put on a camel, whereas you can instead just sail on up the Red Sea and get them directly to the Middle East. So the story of Mecca being a big trading center, there's just simply no way for that to have occurred. And besides that, there's other indications that Mecca did not even exist as a city till probably 200 years at least after the death of Muhammad, that there wasn't anything there. So, that was to speak of any commercial size.
0: So how far away was Palmyra from Mecca quite a ways, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah, a great deal of the distance. Uh, Palmyra is in what we call Syria now, and uh, Mecca, of course, is in the southern central part of Arabia.
0: So would it have made sense in Muhammad's uh, midlife to be living in Palmyra and still know people in Medina that he ended up going to, move, you know, to live with later on?
1: Well, now then, you're beginning to ask some very interesting questions, that many of which don't have answers. But let us just say that the cut and dried story about Mecca and Medina, which is told in the Sirah, is not supported by archaeology. Okay. And yeah. another thing is, uh, I knew a man who. Uh, I forget not why I was able to do this, but he was able to talk with heavy contractors who were doing the work in Mecca and Medina about putting in big, beautiful buildings where before had been small, ugly ones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he asked them, what did you find when you dig down? Because if you dig down in Rome, for instance, you're always going to find archaeological facts. Right. If you dig down in London, you're going to find archaeological bits and pieces. Yeah, There is nothing to be found beneath the surface in Mecca. There wow. is
0: no hidden city
1: there. Wow, that's Which, really once again, points out that Mecca is a recent city, at so, least in terms of...
0: So you're saying Mecca might have started around 800 or so?
1: You know, I don't know enough okay. to, to comment on that. Okay. I wish okay. I did, but I don't.
0: Okay, was, is there another Kaaba in Palmyra that could have been the Kaaba they talk about in the Quran?
1: I don't you know, you've asked more questions now than I'm able to answer. Oh sorry. Okay. That's okay. One of the things I've learned as a scholar is if you don't know, be jump jump on it and say you don't know. You, yeah. You're never wrong yeah. That way.
0: Exactly. So so what kind of a geographical location was Palmyra? What what was the climate and, and the surrounding like over there?
1: Well you can see if you want to you can Google the whole thing. Uh, it was a beautiful city, but it was also a strange city and it was primarily a ritualistic city. It was more tombs there than there were businesses run out of it oh. so this would kind of go along with the fact that mecca was a spiritual center that is if you want to look for that kind of thing
0: okay 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 and so and it and it was much older i guess from what you're saying yes yes so with with the history still make sense that they had um many de- well was it was it technically in arabia i guess you're saying it was not it, oh, it was, was not in, in
1: arabia it was in syria
0: okay okay now then
1: now then these kind of questions have only let me point out something this question was raised by an amateur scholar some of the best work we're the reason that you and i are talking to each other is there's been an intellectual revolution in this part of the world in this in this time which is unusual for the first time the doctrine of Islam has been made easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Muslim scholars had a reason to make it complicated because it keeps them in the priest business. Yeah, how do you? Yeah. They they are the only ones who can answer the questions. You Indispensable
0: middleman, basically.
1: Indispensable middleman. It's the priest.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. And so, so what has happened is is that I'm an amateur scholar. Okay. Yeah. But due to my amateur nature, I've been able to approach the the question. Serious scholars before have been historians, Arabist, and what they call Orientalists, and theologians. They did not ever have any reason to make Islam be easy to understand because they were also a priest, except an academic priest, so that they could be the ones with knowledge.
0: Yeah, otherwise they might become unnecessary.
1: Right. So but it is my purpose as a writer to make me unnecessary
0: yeah that's that's usually the best purpose because you want everyone else to get to the point where they can learn on their own.
1: I but want them to learn on their own and so that's my entire purpose. It was my purpose not to explain the Quran but to make the Quran readable. yeah not to explain Muhammad would make his life readable.
0: Let people find out directly and and so you say you're an amateur scholar, but you're also known as uh, Dr. Warner so how does this how do these two sides fit together
1: well I've been a college professor. I've always been interested in religion all of my life. I've always considered it one of the most important questions to answer. I've never, by the way, found the answer, but I know it's an important question at least. Mm -hmm. And so I, my instinct, and I'm somewhat of a populist in my politics, and so I just instinctively wanted to make Islam a lesson that any man could pick up and read. And this man who wrote the geography of the Quran is also an amateur scholar. But he has done years, decades of work in the area. So these amateur scholars have brought different ideas to mind. And one of those is we want to explain Islam so that anyone can understand it. And that has been my goal.
0: Well, in, in a way, the, uh, a lot of the great discoveries in all of history have been made by people who had fit in the category of amateur scholar, and it wasn't because of some degree they held from a, a, you know institution of the time trying to pass on the conventional wisdom because they went beyond it. Well,
1: as an example, the scientific revolution in both France and England was all done by amateurs. All right. of the great scientists of that period were all self-taught, autodidacts. Yeah. Look, Sir Isaac Newton didn't study calculus and then go write a book about it. He created calculus.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. It wasn't something he was citing in the journals. No, something.
1: no. He, so, Hook, uh, Haley, all of these people were amateurs. Right. They, didn't, they, they studied it on their own, Cavendish. Yeah. All these. So, this has been another amateur and in intellectual revolution that we're experiencing now.
0: So, so just because you brought it up, what, what was your main field of focus before you got interested in Islam, and how did that change?
1: Uh, it was engineering and physics and math.
0: Okay, okay. And then how did this come up?
1: Well, when I started studying Islam, I suddenly realized that there were things that patterns there, and I wanted, as a scientist, I'm trained to measure. So instead of saying there's a verse which says that a Muslim, that, that Muhammad is the perfect example, I went through and counted 91 of them.
0: Okay, okay.
1: When it says that a Muslim is not to be a friend, I didn't quote a verse. I said there's 12 of these verses. I was the first person to bring in simple statistics. This, the statistics as simple as counting how many apples are in your shopping basket. Yeah. That's exactly, I I, I was interested in measuring. I was the first scientist to ever study the fundamental doctrines, fundamental texts of Islam, and so I brought the concept of measurement to it and also making it make sense. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because exactly. once it
1: makes sense, you can't forget it.
0: No, and, and I think the contribution of organizing it and opening up so that people can not only study it in organized form but use the references to check back to the original scriptures mm-hmm. for everything that you're doing is just, you know, a whole game-changing analysis.
1: Well, what you're referring to in my books, if you read something and it's you don't agree with it, every paragraph has a little index number which will let you go back and read it in the original.
0: Right, so, right.
1: Did it's, I say it right or not?
0: Yeah, so that you're not and, just distorting things for your own reasons.
1: Right. And by the way, when it came to the Quran, as a scientist, I was determined to make that book so it could be understood.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you did because I read the whole thing thinking that I should understand it and I couldn't. You know.
1: Well, I was determined to me, it was to me it was like a giant crossword puzzle. This has to this ha- there's something that human beings are not capable of producing ra- random anything. It always has a pattern. Mm-hmm. That we impose upon it. If I ask you to write down random numbers, we'll discover after a while that you have a pattern as to what your random numbers are. Right. So I knew that the Quran could not be a random book. It was a pattern, and it had to be hidden within it. And I brought that from science into the study of the Quran.
0: Yeah, and and I think that your point that all the great discoveries came from so-called amateurs. What you know, languages so powerful mostly on a subconscious level and it controls what people can discover or not and the word amateur has been seen in kind of a derogatory manner it means that you're not good enough to be academically (laughs) acceptable but in reality because of the nature of what so called higher education has now become in America and many other places it's, it's guaranteed that the great discoveries will have to be made by amateurs, including people recovering PhD and, and medical people.
1: I well, will tell you what, universities are no longer centers of cre- of, of scientific thought; they're now ideological factories.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly right, and and they're they're um, they're indoctrination centers.
1: Yes, you know what I'm saying Ide- ideological factories, indoctrination centers. We're saying exactly the same thing. Right. Let me give you an example of this: a college. President said at a I went to North Carolina to give a talk and the left fell out and said, Oh, he's a bigot, hater, racist, he shouldn't be allowed to talk. Right. The president of the local college said, This man is unbalanced and should not be allowed to address the public. Now then, his proper response would be bring him onto our campus we'll debate him and show him what a fool he is. Yeah, instead yeah, he insults yeah. my mental capacity but but he basically says is he's unbalanced. I'm wacko. I'm crazy. Yeah. We're, that we're, is the president of a college who's calling me names.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He should and, roll
1: out his best scholars and says, we're going to come out to your talk, and we're going to ask you questions, and you're going to look like an idiot and a fool by the time we get through with you. But instead, holds, they go out and hold signs outside the hall and say, bigot, hater, racist.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And, and a lot of the people, it turns out, when you start questioning them, holding those signs and screaming, uh, really don't have any idea what they're screaming about, but they're getting paid by the hour.
1: Actually, you're closer than you might think.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, we're witnessing the shutdown of free speech and the, the moving in of a whole new level of, uh, of tyranny worldwide, especially in the West. I agree with you. Um, it would be nice to see that reverse before it gets too much further So, uh, Richard yeah. I think
1: we need to draw this to a close
0: I do too and uh, I just want to mention to everybody that uh, the next chapter let's go into Sharia and oh. find out what that's really about
1: very good because I was determined to make the Sharia understandable as well Richard yeah. you've been fun to talk to
0: okay Bye-bye. thank you talk to you next time okay so there goes Dr. Warner who's coming back And next time, he's going to talk to us about a subject that I bet almost everybody will find incredibly relevant and interesting. It's called Sharia law. And um, especially if it's something that there are people that want that to be the system in America, you might want to know what it is. So, I want to share some impressions with you that I've gotten from talking with Dr. Warner on and off the air. Because I really want to know every detail we can about things that affect our life. And one thing I have to say is my impression is from Dr. Warner, Muhammad was really a good man. Very responsible caravan leader, manager, trader. Um, seems like he was good at keeping accounts of money and goods and things like that. And he definitely was not out to become a famous religious leader. I mean, totally not, uh, not even looking for supernatural spiritual experiences, certainly not looking to start a religion. He was pretty devoted himself, and he was living harmoniously in a village which officially was Mecca, but the, you know there's some question whether it might have been Palmyra, but that's a side issue. Let's assume for the moment it was Me- it was Mecca, and there were all kinds of religions there. Everybody had their own rituals and their own gods, and it was fine. I mean, they were practicing actual mutual respect and tolerance. It sounds a lot like what we're supposed to have in the United States, where you get to believe whatever you want, but so does everybody else, and you can't start intimidating them because they don't agree. And in fact, most religions don't really... um, Condone Harassing other people You know in Beyond What's acceptable So um, Muhammad Was respectful Of everybody else From what I can tell And He didn't even like You know Prophets he, he thought they were Kind of crazy He didn't want to become one And He was just going on Being a uh, Caravan manager And a good one So then Something happened which could happen to anybody, and he met a non-physical being, and I can tell you those are very real. They have all kinds: friendly ones, non-friendly ones, wise ones, not very wise ones. And they don't carry ID resumes and you know social security cards or anything. You have to decide who they are when you meet them, and and remember, any of them can say they are anybody. So this one met Muhammad. Some people say that it identified itself as Gabriel, an angel. Some say it didn't, and he just figured out that's who it was later. And I'm trying to clarify that with Dr. Warner. I don't have a clear answer yet. But he met this angel, or, you know, supernatural being, or being on another level of nature other than what we're used to. So we call it supernatural. And his first reaction is this is totally insane. I don't want to do this. I'm either going crazy. Or I'm becoming a really obnoxious, you know, person who might be seen as a prophet. I don't want that life. Um, I think I'll kill myself. This is him talking, not me. (laughs) So, to me, that shows that Muhammad was sincere. And he had real character. And, you know, was really a respectable person. And he was actually going to, he was willing to do it. Rather than be a burden to his community or... Or go insane He would rather die Amazing So He was on his way up to die And he was going to die By jumping off a cliff Which was convenient Didn't cost anything And was immediately available And on his way up to the cliff This angel who was real Came back and said "Um, Probably better if you don't do that I have work for you to do You really are a prophet of Allah And you're going to have to You know do this work And then his relatives backed that up and said, yeah, you really are a prophet. This is Gabriel talking to you, and you have to give your life to this. So gradually, very slowly, he became comfortable with this, according to the history that we know. And the original cooperation of the religions in Mecca, which had been harmonious for a long time, that was over. And the reason it was over was not because Muhammad became a bad guy. It was because the directions which he was apparently faithfully following changed. Almost like what you'd call a bait-and-switch situation where somebody offers you what seems like a really good deal. You accept it and they say, oh, well, you know, I forgot to mention to you that this deal includes the following, which is some stuff that you don't like, but you're already hooked. So he was already devoted to being the prophet of Allah and doing whatever this angel said Allah wanted And so, as it gradually changed, he said to start telling the other people in Mecca that their religions were all wrong, and by the way, they were all going to hell. And they took religion pretty seriously. And so, being told they were going to hell was not great. And it it got so much contention, and Muhammad would not back off, as far as I can see, because he was being a really faithful mouthpiece of this angel, they threw him out of Mecca. And by that time he had some friends in another place called Medina. And so he went there and the Quran, which was what the angel was dictating to Muhammad and telling him to record somewhere and got recorded in pieces all over the place, written down in other words. um, During the time that he was in Mecca, that was pretty peaceful. And so you could say it was true. At least except for the telling everybody else they were going to hell except for that stuff, it was a religion that was pretty peaceful and it was true as that kind of a religion of peace. and then when he went to Mecca, um, the instructions from the angel changed, which also still went into the Quran, but they were different and they started talking about really seriously these these people were not only going to hell, Muhammad had to do something about it. And what he had to do about it was give them the opportunity, the generous and gracious opportunity to become a Muslim by accepting Muhammad as the prophet and Allah as the only God. And that's really pretty easy to do. And then start following the basic, you know, tenets of Islam. Or they could be killed Or later, after he had just got into killing a lot of them, not himself, he probably only, from what Dr. Warner has told us, he probably only killed maybe one person with his own hands. But he ordered the deaths of thousands. And um, after a while, he realized that he needed some some slaves still alive to be a source of income and, and getting certain things done. And there there was this categorization that came up for what he called people of the book, meaning Jews and Christians who followed written scriptures. Because remember that there was no officially totally written Quran at this point. And there were no, according to Dr. Warner, there were no other written books in Arabic at all. None. The Quran was the first one. And it wasn't done at this point. So they needed some more literate and more sophisticated people to do some work and so there was a category called dimmies that Dr. Warner talked about tonight and you could become a dimmie and you wouldn't have to die, it was great and then you just have to give, I think he mentioned half your income to Mohammed and, and the, uh, the jihad people and I, actually if there's no violence involved and you're just paying a tax I think it all went to Mohammed or the, the power structure that replaced him later um And you could stay alive, you just had to be really quiet about your religion. We talked about that tonight. So the angel started really pushing to enslave or kill everybody who wasn't a Muslim. And the purpose was to make sure that in the world there would be one religion and everybody else would die. Very clear. I mean, it's not a theory. It's written right in the official Quran, which... Dr. Warner has made simpler, but he's given references to every part of the original script. It, it's not a question. And so, you know, a lot of people are getting really clear on what Islam actually says. And it's not that Dr. Warner's against Muslims or anything like that. And I certainly am not. They're their friends of mine. But I think if I was involved in something that I didn't know the details of and it involved orders to commit murder, I'd kind of want to know about it. So that's the spirit with which we're looking at it very carefully. So gradually, as Muhammad got more and more orders from this angel, gradually he collected about 10 or 11 wives. Some died, some were replaced, but he had a lot of wives at the same time in addition to slaves, in addition to sex slaves that were just for sex, and also a huge amount of stolen property. ...from the people that he killed because according to Allah... ...you can just steal all their property if you kill them... ...or if you enslave them... ...then it all belongs to you and they belong to you if they're slaves. And so it became a super profitable religion... ...and this was one thing that made it easier for him to attract people... ...is the killers who went and killed the non-believers... ...they got a cut of whatever they could steal. Whatever those non-believers had, their homes... Their possessions, their, their uh, family members that weren't killed They could get some of them as slaves for themselves So the, the fighters got slaves of their own And this was all fine under Islam And it's still what's written because The original teaching was the permanent teaching And it's the perfect pattern for our life This is the reality of what Islam is uh, The invaders that are being brought into Western Europe and the U.S. They're just following exactly what's written. And Muhammad was uh, the one that taught that you have to kill the non-believers until there are none left, basically. And so using invasion, using mass rape so that your numbers in the population will go up, this is virtuous behavior. And it helps get you into paradise. So this is one reason that Islam becomes so popular. We talked about it becoming permanent tonight and this all ties together. And the reward doesn't hurt at all because paradise is described in a way that everybody can relate to. Food, sex, ease, um, nice places to live, beautiful scenery. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty much what everybody thinks of as an ideal life on earth anyway. And you just get it guaranteed forever and you don't have to die. I mean you don't have to die after you get there You still have to go through the grave And he talked about that But you don't stay there So it's not a promise of a higher type spiritual life That is being offered to these people Who are willing to be terrorists It's offer of of an idealized physical life On a non-physical level And so you also as a side benefit You get the ability or the license to murder Steal, rape, desecrate old relics And feel really powerful by destroying all these things And then you get to share the profits of everything you steal And what belong to the people that you kill It's really incredible deal And the other thing is that once you get in As, as Dr. Warner talked about tonight It's a one way deal You can get in but you cannot get out And what the first caliph was really busy doing initially And the other ones to a lesser degree is making sure to kill all the people that had any idea of getting out of Islam after Muhammad died because they thought it was over. Uh, The caliph said, no, um, I don't think so. You're not leaving unless you want to die. So there was a carrot and a stick, very effective combination that we know is psychologically uh, very productive. And the question for us is, what's the bottom line here? I'll try to go through this quickly because we're running out of time. What's a lesson? This is not to criticize Muslims at all. I think they're great people. And even even the jihadi Muslims that are murdering people and raping people, underneath their hideous programming, and and you don't have to agree with me on, on anything that I'm saying, but especially this, I see really great people underneath them. Now, you might have to Defend yourself against one, and somebody may die. But that's another question. That's practicality. So, what's the bottom line lesson and the opportunity for us to learn if we can understand it? And I think it has to be about programming. And all of us know, at the at our deepest level, we intuitively we have a way to know that if you hurt somebody, you you're going gonna to hurt yourself. You may have to do it in a self-defense situation Or a situation of defending others But any other time If you cause pain to somebody Even non-humans Even if you are abusing animals Or you know, other beings You're hurting yourself We have this deep knowing And if you get a program that detaches you From what you know at that level And you have a belief system of any kind It doesn't have to be religion It can be government programming, it can be your education, it can be fake science It can be any of those things, it can be medical training And it gets you out of touch with this deep level of automatic knowing It's like, it reminds me of, you know, in the Declaration of Independence It says we hold these truths to be self-evident Do you know what that means? It means they didn't read them anywhere They just know that they're right And that's not crazy that's a deep level of knowledge And uh, humans have the knowledge that you don't hurt other people Without a, a really good reason Like self-defense of your life or something like that But if you get a programming system that detaches you from that Their consequences can get really serious um, Cooperation and mutual respect are the natural state you know, That all of us could get into and, and have things work much better But if people don't listen to that really quiet voice of knowing inside themselves That the programming drowns out Then uh, all they want to do is hear about how to get away with things That at a different level they know are not good for them And they want to have no consequences And that's what Islam offered You can murder, you can steal, you can rape You can have slaves, you can steal people's wives you, you can steal all their possessions and their land and their farms You can humiliate them as Dr. Warner talked about tonight Just make sure you know that they're not, you're not doing this to a good Muslim But you can even do it to other Muslims if they're not good Muslims And if they're not real So plus, not only can you do all that great stuff and show how powerful you are You can also go to pa- paradise And that was described in detail along with hell Which is what you get if you don't do this So, before you start criticizing and you understand this about Islam, before you start thinking, oh, those Muslims are, you know, not seeing the obvious. If I was there, I would never do this. Well, wait a minute. You don't respect the power of programming. Because if you're programmed by a system that's extremely sophisticated in how it does this with massive peer pressure, and more so if you're born into it, and from when you're a little kid and you can hardly talk... You're taught that all these things are true Over and over again And the, the parents that are your You know, protectors are telling you this is true Don't be so quick to think That you wouldn't do exactly the same thing So what would you do in your life If a spouse, your husband or wife Or a friend or family member Or a parent or a boss Or a government agency Or a religious leader Or even somebody better known than that Suppose, you know Muhammad himself or Moses or Jesus or Buddha Or whoever you take as your ultimate religious leader Appears in front of you You know, you know Surrounded by brilliant light And tells you all these really uh, Reasonable sounding justifications for starting to commit murder Don't just say you wouldn't do it That's an intense situation So Muhammad seems like a really good person and he got overwhelmed by this and he started becoming the tool of national invasion, genocide, all these things that we don't like to look at, especially if we're a Muslim, but it's the truth. So the thing is, the only way that you can be immune from that happening to you and not just somebody else is that whoever appears in front of you, whoever is your most awesome Spiritual or, or otherwise leader And starts telling you in the, a ball of light Or thunderstorms or whatever impresses you That you have to now kill everybody that, that he points out to kill You have to decline the offer And the only way you can do that Is to be in touch With what you know at a deeper level inside yourself That precedes anything that you learn Anything that you memorize anything that you decide that you believe, there's something built into you because of who made you and who you actually are. And it's enough to tell you yes or no. It, it's like the, um, and i got to be really quick now, we're just about out of time, but it's like the rat in the in the experiment, and I don't advocate animal experiments, they're not necessary. But they use rats in horrible medical experiments and they put a rat in a cage with a, GMO ear corn and a normal organic ear corn, and he wouldn't touch the GMO ear corn, only the organic corn. And that rat hadn't even been to elementary school, as far as we know. And you don't have less internal guidance than a rat. It's just that the complete intellectualization that we go through in government schools and media and. You know, getting detached from our normal feeling of energy and health By all the poisonous garbage that we have to eat Or that we are in, encouraged to eat This gets us out of touch with what we know And we're taught to fear the unknown Which means stay with your programming no matter what So every single one of us, including me Is subject to programming And instead of criticizing somebody else Whether you're Muslim or Or a Jew or a Christian or an atheist or whatever you think you are Learn to get quiet and and observe With clear vision Your own programming No matter what part of your life it's in And do the work you need to do to become clear And self-aware Because if you do No negative deceptive programming can ever get you and those who are caught in programming If you start to respect what it is You're not going to hate them You're going to love and appreciate and respect those Who are victims of really bad programming And work on yourself Because the less programmed you get The more you can help them to get free Free yourself if you want to help them Don't hate them Or you know, just be, don't be against them they're, they're you in another form On a very deep level So anyway that's about all the time we have That we have a lot of good free content on our web We just put out a video I want you to see Lost Arts Radio Response to the intimidation Of the people killing the holistic Doctors It's a very important uh, audio Up on our YouTube and our website Please listen to it And um, Go and enjoy the free content on the website I'm trying to renew that constantly with Doug's help Uh, See Doug's site DiamondDiscAudio.com And, uh, what else? Oh, we still have the video subscription service, especially in view of the intimidation, decided to keep that going. Uh, video subscribers tab on lostartsradio.com. Uh, a limited number of one-on-one sessions with me on the phone providing money for the research institute. If you are in a really tough situation or you want to upgrade your life or you're dealing with a terminal disease or whatever you really want, um other type of information that you're not going to get from the system i have a few appointments i'll give to people as my contribution to the research institute please take advantage of that email me at richard at do your homework work on yourself make a contribution to the world be nice to people and uh, we'll see you next time